Welcome to Media Roots Radio. This is Abby Martin. The last plane carrying U.S. military forces left Afghanistan today, meeting the August 31st deadline, Biden said to close out the 20-year-long brutal war and occupation. U.S. personnel also blew up the last CIA base in Kabul on their way out. Total chaos ensued since the Taliban gained control of Kabul on August 15th, where horrifying scenes like people falling off aircraft and soldiers unloading into crowds have defined Biden's mad scramble to evacuate Americans and token Afghans who helped the U.S. And just days ago, a devastating suicide bombing carried out by ISIS-K left over 100 people dead, including 20 Taliban members and 13 U.S. soldiers. The official death toll from the blast is yet to be determined. But shockingly, witnesses say that many killed were actually shot by U.S. forces who panicked and started shooting into the crowd. For those who carried out this attack, as well as anyone who wishes America harm, know this, we will not forgive. We will not forget. We will hunt you down and make you pay. Biden's promise to carry out revenge for the attack resulted in a drone strike in a residential neighborhood that wiped out 10 members of the same family, including seven children. Countless lives extinguished needlessly because of the U.S. empire's imperial hubris to maintain a 20-year criminal war that never should have been launched in the first place. Well, no one better to discuss everything that's going on in Afghanistan today and more about the disastrous effects of U.S. foreign policy is Scott Horton, editorial director of Antiwar.com and author of the books Fool's Errand, It's Time to End the War in Afghanistan and Enough Already, Time to End the War on Terrorism. Scott, thank you so much for joining us on Media Roots Radio. Happy to be here. Thanks for having me. So your book, Fool's Errand, is great. It's a very fun and enlightening read. I pretty much read it in about two days. Uh, Now that it looks unbelievably like combat operations are done in Afghanistan and that troops are being or have been removed, rather, including the 18,000 or so private contractors. I mean, you wrote a whole book on this, Scott. Why don't you give us your assessment on what was won and lost for the U.S. empire? Oh, well... You know, Garrett Garrett, the old right writer from back in the, I guess, 30s and 40s and 50s, said that uh, in the American empire, everything goes out and nothing comes back. In other words, there's really no benefit for the American people. If it was just, if the mission was plunder and we're going to steal your gold and your lithium and whatever, at least the average schmuck could understand that. And there's a obvious imperial interest in doing so. As Donald Trump says, we'll just take their oil. I'm going to scoop it up in one big uh, spoonful and bring it home with you. Uh, Something like that. But in the American empire, in fact, the only people making money are the people who sell weapons to the Pentagon and, you know, the contractors that work for them in various, uh, you know, other capacities. In other words, all of the profit taking 
is by those who help the Pentagon wage the war and maintain the war and continue the war. But there's really no benefit for the American people whatsoever. So, or even for the American empire, what have they gained? And you listen to them talk now, and I write about this in the book. This is sort of when they're grasping at straws and desperate measures. They say, yeah, but look at the strategic advantage this gives us having a base in a country that borders uh, Iran and China, which is just barely China, but yeah, and sort of Russia. But it doesn't give us any strategic advantage at all, does it? Even from the empire's point of view. What good does it do you to have a bunch of troops at the Bagram Air Base in Afghanistan? There's, no, there's not enough equipment there to wage a war against uh, Iran, much less a nuclear war. We're going to station H-bombs at Bagram for a strategic advantage against Russia or China? Of course not. Not in 100 years would we do that. So what good do we get out of it at all? Even from the empire's point of view? Nothing really. Just money for people who are in on the project is really it. And then what have they lost? Well, what have we lost? A couple of trillion dollars, probably 10 trillion in opportunity costs from what that wealth could have been invested in instead. And, you know, see the New York Times running articles like they did uh, yesterday or the day before saying, yeah, actually, it is true that Mullah Omar offered to surrender. And so did Haqqani, by the way. And that even going as far as accepting regime change just for the sake of argument, they still, and there's a chapter in my book called Missed Chances for Peace, about how they still never had to fight a war this whole time. The Taliban accepted the new Karzai government as Islamic and legitimate. Karzai was a Popalzai Pashtun from the Kandahar uh, province. His father had been an important chief or a semi-important chief or something. So he was good enough even for the Taliban to settle for. Could have just cut and run right then. All good. We did it. Hooray. Congratulations. Even accepting, I'm skipping a lot of arguments here just to make the point. Even accepting regime change, we still didn't need to fight there. And if we didn't need to fight there, then what does that say about Iraq and Libya and Syria and Yemen and on into Mali and Chad and Niger and Nigeria and the rest too? You know, none of this had to happen. None of it had to happen. Well, it's interesting too, because a lot of people now are, you know, coming out there saying, yeah, the Taliban offered to give up bin Laden and they kept saying, you know, with evidence. But your book points out that they actually abandoned the whole with evidence thing. And like you said, I mean, they they even were willing to accept the Karzai government, which is like unbelievable. And so there were so many opportunities to avoid what ended up happening. But I mean, everything from Carter, Reagan's attempt to bankrupt the Soviet Union by funding the Mujahideen through Clinton's horrific policy toward Iraq, millions that died as a direct result of funding the both sides of that war, the Iran-Iraq war, the sanctions regime in the 90s. I mean, really, is all of this to just make short-term profits for defense corporations while essentially strengthening America's so-called enemies later on? I mean, how is it as short-sighted as that, really? It's crazy. I mean, the thing of it is, right, is you have the military-industrial complex, you know, part of our economy, and then they pay eggheads at think tanks to write studies. And so it's a little bit of a chicken and an egg thing. Who could deny that these people have a strategy in mind, but also who could deny that they wouldn't have a job at all if Northrop Grumman wasn't paying them to write that stuff up and they'd out, you know, be out you know, <laughs> doing real work for a living. And so their argument would not matter because it wouldn't be made or it would be falling on deaf ears. And so 
you know, I've long been of the opinion, I think I make this case a little bit in enough already. I don't know if I have enough to marshal like a book's worth of case about it, but um, there have been, you know, reasons, indications, I should say, all along that the terror wars in the Middle East are really ultimately all part of our unending Cold War against Russia and China. That even though Nixon made peace with China in the early 70s and the Soviet Union outright ceased to exist and became our friend or at least partner back in uh, the late 80s and early 1990s, that the doctrine of global hegemony, as Kagan and Crystal called it in toward a neo-Reaganite foreign policy, or this, you know, um, stricture against allowing the rise of a near-peer competitor, as it was uh, written by Libby and Khalil Saad and Wolfowitz in the Defense Planning Guidance in 1992, that that's all essentially part of, well, what if we had to have a war with China someday? We got to be able to cut off their oil supplies. This is an important choke point. In fact, interesting coincidence, Dick Cheney testified on September 11th, 1991 to Congress. No, pardon me, 1990 to Congress that, you know, this is a really important choke point in the world, this Persian Gulf, and we have to control it. It's part of our leverage against our friends and our enemies. Right. You know, the Australians and the Japanese and the South Koreans, they all drink uh, Middle Eastern oil all day, too. And so it's a big part of of, you know, our strategic power in the world. And then it was that night that H.W. Bush announced the new world order in his speech to Congress, which that may have been the reason that uh, the Al Qaeda guys picked that day, you know, as the anniversary, the 11 year anniversary of H.W. Bush announcing that we own the world. <laughs> and, uh, but anyway, or it might just be sheer coincidence. I got the same birthday as Han Solo. It just happens to be that way. But <laughs> I share uh, the same birthday with George W. Bush. So, Oh, man, uh, that's really too bad the, for you. I'm sorry. The one interesting thing that I've heard you bring up before, Scott, is this, this idea that Afghanistan had something to do with, or maybe some of the thinkers involved had something to do with thwarting the One Belt, One Road initiative. We talked about this on our last interview. But I wanted to ask you, going back to like one of the first you know, major pop culture things that really pushed back against some aspects, not all aspects of, but some aspects of the Afghanistan invasion was you know, the famous documentary Fahrenheit 9-11 by Michael Moore. And you know, I'm sure in retrospect, you could probably see some things that he got wrong or oversimplified, but specifically in that movie, he make he has this sort of, I think, an overly simplistic narrative about Karzai being sort of an emissary for, I think he even says Unical specifically, that he was sort of there to make sure that an oil pipeline could be built across, you know, practically the entire country of Afghanistan, cutting through it uh, to the Caspian Sea. What do you think about all that in retrospect, that that was sort of a way that a lot of, you know, anti-war lefties and, and other anti-war people had looked at the situation at the beginning? How do you feel about that narrative now? And do you feel that it's oversimplified or even maybe that it's not even correct? Well, it's certainly correct in the 1990s. I don't think that yeah. that's... Uh, we'll get to the 21st century here in a second. In the 1990s, the Bill Clinton government absolutely supported the Saudi and Pakistani effort to support the Taliban's rise to power in Afghanistan. And they made it clear that 
they wanted the Taliban to win outright. They didn't want a peace deal negotiated between the Taliban and uh, Massoud and his Northern Alliance faction and, and allies, Dostum and them, because that would probably leave Afghanistan, you know, with they would have too much autonomy, right? They wanted the Taliban to defeat them totally so that they would claim a real monopoly on force in that country. So for exactly the purpose that they could protect an oil pipeline to run from Turkmenistan through Afghanistan, through the mountains and out to the port of Karachi, which boy, talk about hubris and all in the name of keeping the gas, keeping the oil out of the hands of the Russians finding a way to get Caspian oil out of that region without the Russians being able to take a bite of it. So, you know, which is just incredible to think that that would have been such a high priority instead of treating the Russians with just the basic amount of respect that they might deserve as still some form of major power after the end of the Soviet Union. As George Kennan says, you know, these people were the ones who overthrew the USSR for us. And here we're kicking them while they're down like this. It's just not right. And then think of the hubris to, to think that they could, you know, build a pipeline across, as you just put it, the entire length of Afghanistan and through the mountains and all the way through Pakistan to the port of Karachi. Of course, this is a total pipe dream all along anyway. Um, but then is that why the... Um, the Bush government went to war there or put Karzai in power there? No. It was just that, you know, as uh, Andrew Coburn put it on my show the other day, Salmeh Khalilzad's the one Arab they know, or the one, uh, actually he's not an Arab, pardon me, he's an Afghan, but the one Muslim that they know who knows anything about the old world over there at all. So they just say, hey, Zal, what do we do? And, and um, you know, Hamid Karzai was his guy. They had worked together on the project in the 90s. And I, by the way, I have the quotes in the book with the Clinton administration officials confirming that this was their point of view about them wanting the Taliban to take over and all of that. Um, but uh, and they soured on that after a while uh, with, you know, there's a huge PR campaign against the Taliban because they are a bunch of medieval goons. But then you had Christian Amanpour and Jay Leno's wife for some reason and and uh, some other people building up a huge pressure campaign to get Bill Clinton to back off support for them which, you know, was moderately successful, I guess, uh, toward the end of his presidency there. Um, but then, now, as far as putting him in there, I mean, look at what's going on the last 20 years. Anybody even try to lay one mile of pipe? No. And, and this is why when David Petraeus tries to sell us on the war back 10 years ago, Petraeus says, you know, there's a trillion dollars of minerals there. Get greedy. Come on, American imperialists. Let's go steal that wealth out of the ground from, you know, these goat herders. They can't stop us. Uh, that was always an absolute, you know, illusion, essentially, just a fraud. I mean, think about, I mean, assuming there's no such thing as morality and we were all just in it for the filthy money and didn't care about that. Who thinks that you could build a gigantic lithium mining project in Afghanistan with a, what, a railroad and a highway and, you know, tens of billions of dollars in investment, big refining facilities and transportation out of this landlocked country, you know, on the far side of the mountains from the ocean and all of these things. It makes no sense whatsoever. The security situation absolutely will not allow for it. And even if the Taliban take over the entire country right now, everybody's so afraid, oh, the Chinese are coming. You know what? 
if they're coming, they're coming just a few miles. You know, yeah. they're not, there's no way in the world. Well, well, I put it this way. No private company is going to risk investors' money. Not even the wildest so-called adventure capitalists will invest in mining in Afghanistan. It's just way too heavy of an investment uh, to for the risk and return. Now, the Chinese government might try it since they can just print money all day and take a loss and go ahead and try to develop such things. But you know what? Bush and Obama, they could print money all day and they never tried it, despite all of the BS that David Petraeus talked. I don't know. Once the Taliban take over the country, they want to make a deal with the Chinese. I guess we'll see. But And I'm skipping ahead, but the Taliban just bit off a lot, and it remains to be seen whether they can chew it all, you know? Um and especially over the medium and long term, there's a major test of how much autonomy they're going to give the various warlords uh, or are willing to and versus how much autonomy those warlords are going to demand, especially in the north of the country. So, um, you know, I, I don't predict that anybody's going to be making any of these kind of investments. And, and for, for Michael Moore to get that wrong, you know what? He doesn't mention the neoconservatives anywhere in that entire movie. He doesn't mention the word Israel anywhere in that entire movie. <laughs> um, no shit. So, like, you know, what What does the Iraq war have to do with Likud? Apparently nothing, except that by the time that movie came out, well, everybody at antiwar.com knew their names, you know? I mean, I think there's a lot of confusion now with people saying, well, what exactly was this for? I mean, people who are aware of the U.S. empire and imperialism and... I feel like they, you know, a lot of people are just like, well, what the hell did we gain? How come we didn't set up, set up the mining operations? How come we didn't set up the pipeline, all of that? But I mean, you can't do these things if you have an active insurgency. Like you said, I mean, just logistically, it's insane to think that the U.S. would do that. I mean, of course, initially, they probably wanted a neo-colony. They weren't expecting, uh, obviously, what happened. Um, but then again, of course, everyone knew immediately that what was going to happen and they just kept going and going and going. Uh, you unearth this history, which is really important because we're seeing all of these people try to rewrite the Afghanistan war now. All of these pundits, all the politicians going out there um, bemoaning about, you know, women's rights. And this is obviously, you know, WikiLeaks just posted the other day that this is actually like a CIA talking point to exploit and weaponize women, just like the U.S. does in all of these countries and human rights in general to just make make it more palatable, make the argument that it was all worth it and that when we leave now there's all of this, you know, we're, we're basically letting all these people out to dry and putting, you know, putting them at death's door and blah, 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 blah. But then you have like corporate news entities like CNN just coming out there and really saying the quiet part out loud. <laughs> like, you know, the Taliban is sitting on top of a trillion dollars of mineral wealth the world desperately needs. I mean, it's just, it just ludicrous. You really can't make this shit up. But I mean, again, back to the book, like it is, it's so important to document this and you document it so extensively with corroborating evidence of all of these people's own words, the think tank policy prescriptions, the people on TV, the politicians, like basically just lying over and over and over again to justify this endless slaughter Pretty much for a few corporations, just the defense corporations, like you just said. I mean, just as bin Laden essentially predicted, which you also discuss in your book, bin Laden and his ilk wanted the outcome of an unwinnable quagmire. It seems hard to believe the U.S. would just essentially step right into something that 
was exactly what bin Laden wanted? I mean, just expand on this strategy in their eyes. Like, why would they want the U.S. to invade Afghanistan and Iraq? Yeah. You know what? You just reminded me with that. First of all, I wrote an article about this just the other day at antiwar.com. It's called Peter Bergen is Mistaken About Bin Laden's Strategy. I'm trying to be very friendly. Um, it's an honest mistake. But you just reminded me of another major evidence that should have gone in there that I neglected to add in that article, but is in the book, which is that I'm almost certain is in the book, um, which is that inside the Bush White House, they discussed that, you know, bin Laden's trying to trap us into this thing and we should avoid that. And this was part of, in fact, Rumsfeld especially was behind that argument because he wanted to do, he had his pre-existing agenda was the transformation of the military to make it light and fast and heavily dependent on the Air Force and Special Operations Forces rather than, you know, massive army infantry divisions and, and this kind of thing. And so... I'm 99% certain this is in Bush at War by Bob Woodward, the first Woodward book about the W. Bush years, that where they discuss this heavily, that we don't want to make that mistake that they're trying to get us to make. So we'll go just light and fast. We'll, you know, this was part of their argument. In fact, you could say it was an argument that they hid behind for a more cynical decision, perhaps, to let bin Laden escape. That, oh, we didn't want right. to commit massive amounts of forces to the country because that would have been, you know, contrary to what we we're trying to do here. But uh, in fact, I believe it was brought up in that context numerous times. So it's not in other words, it's not just antiwar.com talking. This is the discussion between Tenet and Rice and Powell and Rumsfeld and Cheney and the rest of these people inside the government of how are we playing this? Or what's the context of all of this and all that kind of thing right there? But anyway, so in my in my new article, Peter Bergen is mistaken about bin Laden's strategy. I cite all the best evidences that I can remember about bin Laden saying not just that he wanted to provoke a reaction and then defeat us and humiliate us in battle and drive us out, but that he wanted a war of attrition uh, and in order to really replicate what had happened in uh Afghanistan in the 1980s when, of course, America helped the Mujahideen and the Arab-Afghan army to bog down the Soviet Union and bleed them to bankruptcy. Now, the reason I'm picking on Peter Bergen, and famously he was the CNN producer who went with Peter Arnett to interview bin Laden in 1997 and is, you know, the CNN expert on it and all of that, is he says, and maybe he's even referring to me, I don't know, because I never hear anybody else really say this very much, but he says... Um, that, yeah, people go around nowadays citing this 2004 speech where bin Laden says, all along I was trying to draw you in and bog you down and bleed you to bankruptcy. But that's really his after-the-fact rationalization for the fact that his strategy didn't work. He thought that he'd beat us and we would be weak and we would turn around and leave very quickly after losing just a few soldiers. And instead what happened was we invaded Iraq and we built even more bases on the Arabian Peninsula. So his strategy failed. So then he had to come up with this post hoc rationalization. And I could see why Bergen would think that because there are statements by bin Laden saying, look, they turned tail and ran like a paper tiger when we beat them in Somalia. They didn't double down. Mr. New World Order turned and ran. Well, we ain't scared of you. And we think that once we get a chance to fight the Americans, that they'll be really easy to beat. He did say that. Although I make the case in there, and I'm pretty convinced I'm right about this, 
that those are taunts, that he's saying the Americans are weaklings. They call themselves the kings of the new world order, but they see now they don't use that language anymore because they know they're not fit for that title and all this kind of stuff. So in other words, they're trying to taunt the Peter Bergens and the, uh, you know, um, uh, what's his name, that nitwit from the New York Times, I'm always picking on, Brett Stevens, um, trying to, and, and Jonah Goldberg, formerly of the National Review, trying to taunt them and make them think, oh, see, they're saying that we're weak and that we'll never go over there uh, and stay very long because how weak we are. And that just proves that we have to go and we have to double down and triple down and surge and surge again and stay forever so that that's never true about us, that we'll ever give up and withdraw. But then, so that's the whole point. And it's been Laden's, uh, first of all, he said to Abdel Bari Atwan in 1996, the reporter from, and the editor of Al-Quds Al-Arabi in London, he told, I think he interviewed bin Laden twice. But anyway, um, in 1996, he said that um, what we're going to do is, look, we, we know we can't beat them on their own soil or anything like that. We've got to lure them over here so we can bog them down and beat them here the same way that we did to the Russians. And he said that he was disappointed that Bill Clinton had withdrawn from Somalia in 1993. Not Didn't just mock us and say, oh, see, they're a paper tiger. They'll turn around and run scared. He said that, no, see, we were really disappointed that they didn't escalate because we wanted to bog them down in a war of attrition then. And so that was, you know, as early as 1993 was that was his strategy. So and then that explains the attacks against the United States all along. And I don't know if you guys saw this just in June. Slate has a piece about Judith Miller, the infamous New York Times reporter who helped lie us in a war with Iraq, but very connected to the intelligence services and so forth. And she had a scoop that they did not run, but it's confirmed her news, her uh, New York Times editor talks about this to Slate. It's not just her story. Her editor explains the story that was given to her by, I guess, CIA, that they had an intercept of two Al-Qaeda guys talking on the phone. And the one guy says, man, it's really a shame that the Americans didn't take the bait after we blew up their battleship in Yemen. What's the problem with that? And the other guy says, don't worry, there's another one coming up soon and they'll, and it's going to be big and they'll have to retaliate then. And so in other words, they're baiting this trap. Now then the real big one, I think the most important one is Bin Laden's son, Omar, talking to Rolling Stone magazine in 2010. So at this point, Bin Laden is still alive. And he's saying, uh, in Bill Clinton's time, he sent some cruise missiles after my father and he didn't get them. But now under W. Bush, or I guess uh, this is uh, early Obama, but um, now um, you've been there for 10 years in Afghanistan and you still don't have my father. And you spent all this money, billions of dollars. Better America would have kept that money for its economy. In Clinton's time, America was smart not like the bull that runs after the red scarf. And then he elaborates. And I don't think, I mean, I don't know, maybe this guy has a public relations firm. I don't think so. He gave this interview to Guy Lawson of Rolling Stone in a nightclub in Damascus. He says, uh, listen, when W. Bush was elected in 2000, I was still in Afghanistan. And let me tell you, my father was so happy. This is the kind of president he needs, one who will take the bait and invade the country and spend money and break the country. 
And so, and, and my father, he said he would do to the Americans the same thing he'd done to the Russians, which as all good jihadists and Reaganites know, means bog them down in a 10-year, gigantic, catastrophic, Vietnam-like, no-win quagmire that destroys, destabilizes the country back home and, and bogs down and breaks the spirit of the army and, and ruins everything what you're trying to do through overextension. And so then sometimes, and I made this case for so long, people get mad at me. They say, look, man, you're just apologizing for W. Bush. Oh, yeah, poor old doe-eyed innocent W. Bush. He just accidentally was tricked into doing all this horrible stuff. But that's not what I'm saying at all. I'm saying here's like this short-sighted, narrow-minded, frog-torturing little bastard, right? This, <laughs> this, this little shit, basically, W. Bush. And... Bin Laden sees him as the perfect mark. Here's someone who is corrupt and ignorant and cynical, who will take advantage, will do the wrong thing, and I will give him the crisis to exploit. I will give him the opportunity to do the wrong thing. And I'm real lucky about this because, you know, when it happened, I was a truth before 9-11 ever happened. I've been predicting it for years. But I was thinking, well, listen, you know, if these guys did this and it wasn't all just a CIA op, which I don't believe it was for the record here. But at the time, I wondered, you know, if this wasn't just a CIA op, and these guys really are their own, you know, anti-American empire fighters out there doing this. Well, then, man, they screwed up. I mean, talk about giving Dick Cheney and George W. Bush a kick in the pants and the excuse to do whatever they want in the world now, you know. But then only, what, a month later or something like that. I read the brilliant William Norman Grigg, who at that time was the editor of the New American Magazine. That's the John Birch Society, conspiracy kook, right-wingers. But he was the very, very best of them, let me tell you what. And he's going to live forever, too. But anyway, so I read that. And what he says is, listen, in terrorism, he quotes Saul Alinsky, in terrorism, the real action is in the reaction of the opposition. So, yes, Bin Laden just gave Dick Cheney and Paul Wolfowitz an excuse to do whatever they wanted. But that's what he was trying to do. That's the only way. And by the way, this is convenient because this is the John Birch conspiracy theory about the Illuminati or whatever, right? Is the only way to destroy the America is through imperial overextension. That's why they're so anti-war. They've always seen war as a way to, you know, bankrupt and destroy the United States. So here... They just happen to take the same model and say, hey, look, that's what bin Laden is trying to do to us. Only in this case, it really made sense. <laughs> that, yeah, that's exactly right. This is what Zbigniew Brzezinski and Walter Slocum, two centers of Rockefeller power and the attention of, uh, well, certainly Brzezinski, I don't know about Slocum, and, and, and the attention of the John Birchers for all those years, this was their plan against the Soviets in 1979. We'll give them their own Vietnam will lure their empire into overcommitment to unsustainable projects and help bog it down, drive it into the ground. And that was, in fact, the premeditated plot. That was the goal all along in writing from 79. You know, I, I got the memos at scotthorton.org slash fair use. Anybody can go and look at in Zbigniew Brzezinski's secretary's typewriter's hand there. Um, and uh, anyway, so... Um, yeah, that was the deal. That was what they were going for. And, of course, look at us now. 20 years later, bin Laden said, oh, there's, I'm sorry, one more major piece of evidence here. Right after the war, 
he wrote an email to Mullah Omar, and Alan Cullison from the Wall Street Journal got his hands on it. And he's saying to Mullah Omar, essentially, man, you're great. Please don't hate me and kill me. I'm, I really respect you a lot. You're, you're doing such a great thing by not handing me over. I really appreciate that. And um, by the way, essentially, like, even if we die in this thing, remember, the Americans only have two choices. They could turn around and run and lose their status as a world power, or they can commit to a long-term war here, in which case we'll eventually beat them. I think he says in about 10 years time or so, we'll drive them out and then they will, it will be just like the fall of the Soviet Union and it'll destroy their empire. So plan A and plan B, either way America loses and you come out the hero, Mullah Omar. But there it is, plan B. Yeah, I mean, I was just gonna say that it, you know, unlike Vietnam, there was no robust anti-war movement that came out of this. And unlike Vietnam and unlike the Soviet Union getting bogged down in Afghanistan, it did not bankrupt the United States. And it's almost like, I mean, I mean, looking back on it, it's like, what did it really do other than open up this giant new territory in the Middle East to give carte blanche to all of these warmongers to just continue to do whatever the fuck they wanted to? I mean, as you mentioned, that incredible interview from bin laden's son omar who just said like bin laden already won after the invasion that that's basically what his dad wanted but then you have also george bush basically being like i don't care about bin laden i don't spend much time on him like literally they just didn't care at all and i mean i could see where so many conspiracies would arise after this because it's like i mean it basically is just insane the fact that bin Laden was allowed to essentially leave. No one really cared about even getting him. And he was the alleged mastermind behind this horrific terrorist attack that, you know, was the biggest terrorist attack on American soil. It's just absolutely surreal. Yeah. Well, I mean, and look, I think this is a, a big reason for the 9-11 trutherism is because they did lie right away and they conflated al-Qaeda with the Taliban, where al-Qaeda were, at least at their leadership level, were wealthy and well-educated, sophisticated, worldly people. Bin Laden was the son of a billionaire, had an engineering degree. Uh, his partner, Zawahri, was a prominent surgeon from Cairo and, you know, a man of society and that kind of thing back before he, uh, you know, got crossed paths with the government there. And um, they knew what they were doing. And that story makes a bit more sense. Um, but then... The Bush government immediately said that it was the Taliban that had attacked us, or at least, you know, they're very happy to play slippery with language and all of that and conflate al-Qaeda with the Taliban as much as they could. And I think that was the reason so many people became truthers right away, was because that just doesn't feel right, does it? That a bunch of hillbilly cavemen from deep valleys somewhere in Pashtunistan, they have a grudge against us because of how free we are? That can't be right. You know, what, 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 didn't Bill Clinton just support these guys rise to power a couple of years ago? I don't know. Um, and so, but that wasn't really the case, right? It was this international group of sophisticated and educated and wealthy Arabs who had been behind the plot. And that was the reality of it. And, and one that's not so easy to dismiss when you uh, look deep at it. But then you're actually, or, I don't mean actually, obviously, um, you are uh, absolutely right that they didn't want to catch bin Laden. They wanted to let him get away. And I can't prove that 100%, but I build the circumstantial case in both books. 
especially in the second book. I read the Delta Force guys book since then, since the first one. And where the CIA guys and the Delta guys on the ground at Tora Bora in 2017, they, you know, they were able to call in, you know, pretty massive air power. But it was on terrain that was not very conducive to, you know, the effectiveness of airstrikes, um, you know, in those mountains. And, uh, but the thing of it was you had, as soon as Delta Force got there, it was Team B arrived and they pulled out Team A. And the leader of the group said, what are you doing? We need those guys. And they said, oh yeah, no, see, it's a PSYOP. We just want to fake out Bin Laden and make him think we're leaving. Okay, yeah, but like we could use our buddy's help, you know, or I don't know. And we're still here. He's going to know the PSYOP isn't true like in a day or two at the latest, you know, I don't know. Um, and, and, and you know, Thomas Greer, who wrote the book Kill Bin Laden, who was the Delta Force commander there, he didn't seem to believe that was a sensible excuse at all, but it was just an excuse, not a real reason. Um, and then they and the... Um, CIA Special Activities Division paramilitaries were left to rely on local Afghan militias to do the fighting for them. And no matter how many times they begged for reinforcements, and it must have been, you know, a solid half a dozen, and I think it must have been many more than that. Um, no matter how many times they requested reinforcements, they were denied. But the thing of it is, there were reinforcements, right? There were Green Berets up fighting the Taliban near Mazari Sharif in the far north of the country. The Taliban, they didn't do it. There's some betting with uh, Rashid Dostum, the former Soviet puppet general war criminal, who's a war criminal then. And you guys probably know about the Afghan massacre. Everybody Google that up. You can find it on Democracy Now's website from a long time ago, the Afghan from 2001. Um, that's the Green Berets and General Dostum up there murdering captives at the time when they could have been on their way down to Nangarhar province to help seal the border to Pakistan. Then you had army rangers holding down the Bagram air base, but you could have spared every single one that you can spare instead of leaving the entire detachment there. Um, and just, you know, they could have had a minimal force to hold down the airfield and otherwise let these Rangers come and back up Delta. No, denied. And then again, more Rangers and then even General Mattis and 4,000 marching Marines down in Kandahar province refused, per refused permission to go and back up the Delta force and the CIA on the ground there. So they kind of had them cornered on one side and and they weren't able to stop them from escaping. And then as you guys are familiar, and I'm sure everyone in your audience is familiar, we heard this all a million times. They slipped across the border into Pakistan. And that means that then they vanished into thin air. Or that means that the border to Pakistan is a semi-permeable membrane that no one is ever even supposed to consider whether the Americans could have crossed that border into a friendly, cooperative country at the time in pursuit of their, in hot pursuit of their quarry who just killed 3,000 American civilians or, oh, 2,500 American civilians and a bunch of military officers and all of that as well. Uh, nope. Unfortunately, they just jumped into hyperspace and there's no way to chase them. And that's just it. And um, but meanwhile, it turns out, according to Thomas Greer, the Delta Force commander, the book is called Kill Bin Laden by Dalton Fury. That's his um, alias there. But it's uh, Thomas Greer is his name. And he did a 60 Minutes episode and everybody can look this up on YouTube. Thomas Greer or Dalton Fury, 60 Minutes. Um, and you'll see it where he they build a model for him and everything. 
and he explains how bin Laden got away, which direction he went, and how the Delta Force had all these different plans for how to go after him, how to corner him. We're going to fly into Pakistan and then come over the mountains, or we're going to drop a bunch of mines in the only two or three valleys he had to choose from to escape, and et cetera, and on and on, and just denied, denied, denied. And the way Greer talks about this, he says, um, you know, when the Delta Force is deployed on a mission and they ask permission to make a tactical change in order to accomplish their strategic objective, they are given permission 100% of the time. This is top-tier Army Special Operations Forces, top-tier in the entire country. Them and SEAL Team 6 are equal for the very top-tier there, right? So when they say permission to turn east and then south, they always get it, always, always. In this case, denied, 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 denied over and over and over and over again. And to quote Greer and Gary Bernson, the CIA officer in charge there, repeatedly, just couldn't understand it. Just didn't make sense. But of course, it does make sense. Oh, one more thing about that. CIA officer named Robert Grenier was the station chief in Islamabad at the time. And uh, America had already threatened Perfez Musharraf's government that you're going to sacrifice your alliance with the Taliban starting right now, buddy, or we're going to turn, as Dick Armitage put it, Powell's deputy at state, that will reduce your country to the Stone Age. He didn't even give them a chance to say yes yet before he threatened them with nuclear devastation over there. And, they, and then he did say yes, of course, we're at your service, America, whatever you say. So Grenier had already... Uh, arranged with the um, Afghan Frontier Corps and Army that when the Delta Force comes across the border in hot pursuit of any Al-Qaeda guys who are able to get away, that we want to have make sure and have established deconfliction so that we don't have a friendly fire accident and our Delta Force guys don't get shot by our Pakistani friends. And so that was already set up, ready to go. And then they just never had opportunity to use it because Bush and Cheney and Rumsfeld and Franks refused to let them proceed. In fact, Ron Suskin talks about how Gary Bernson's commander back at CIA, who was, um, oh, I'm sorry, his name is escaping me uh, right now. Um, it's on the tip of my tongue. But anyway, he went to the White House and laid out a map on the floor or on Bush's desk and said, here's where we're at. We're right at the Pakistani border. All we need is some reinforcements here. We just need some rangers, whatever it is. No luck, told sorry, Charlie. They had every reason to, um, to do it. And one more thing, and this is again from Bob Woodward's book, um, Bush at War, was that as part of the discussion in the White House, first of all, Rice, the National Security Advisor, and George Tenet, well, I don't know George Tenet personally, but I guess the CIA was recommending through him or whatever that we should just kill Arabs and we should try very hard to leave the Taliban alone and give them reason to separate themselves from their barely tolerated Al-Qaeda guests here. And maybe they'll just stay out of our way and we'll just take care of that. So that was, wasn't just, you know, Justin Raimondo talking. That was, uh, you know, a, a significant, that was, you know, a principle on the, on the National Security Council at the time, or two principals arguing that. And then, um, you know, the other argument was, of course, led by Donald Rumsfeld and, I guess, you know, quietly Dick Cheney. And that was that, no, because 
we want to expand the war. And we want to essentially, we, uh, let's see, they say, if we kill bin Laden, that is not victory. And if we fail to kill bin Laden, that is not defeat. This war is way bigger than catching the guilty. And in fact, you can see in the argument where catching the guilty could be a real problem. You know, what if we do kill bin Laden and then the American people think that the war is over? And Rumsfeld suggests we should start bombing Baghdad right now so that the American people understand that this war is going to spread throughout space and time. That it is not to be, you know, confused with wanted dead or alive, the guilty of those who attacked us. Oh, no. It's a whole new order we're going to build now. And so and that's clearly the motive for letting bin Laden go is they wanted to build a series of scare stories about how bin Laden could receive Iraqi chemical weapons or nuclear weapons even and use them against us. As Bush said, imagine September 11th, only this time with Al-Qaeda armed with Iraqi weapons of mass destruction. And they pushed that lie. Oh man, did they push that lie uh, for you know a year and a half straight in order to get us into Iraq. And you can see how nobody would care about Saddam's alleged alliance with bin Laden if bin Laden was already dead. And if the American people felt like, yeah, that's what you get for messing with us. We get our revenge, and now, but we won, right? USA. Remember the big, I don't know how forced this was, but all the big celebrations when they finally got bin Laden in 2011? Well, what if they just done that at the end of 2001? Now, a year and a half from now, yeah. you're telling me we got to attack Iraq? When... My high from all the fighting has already subsided. You know what I mean? It wouldn't work nearly as well. They, they had a public relations initiative to launch, you know, and, and so I think it's essentially proven. It, it's very clear to me that that was why they refused to commit the forces necessary to make sure to get bin Laden and Zawahiri and their friends there. Just a few hundred guys, you know, no more than 400 guys there hiding at the... And by the way... You know, Peter Bergen and Peter Arnett and uh, John Miller from ABC News and Robert Fisk, I think, went there. Yeah, I'm almost certain Robert Fisk also went there. They'd all gone to the lion's den in the Nangahar province, Tora Bora Mountains, right there. The Bin Laden's secret hideout thing, where he wasn't living yeah. at the farm near Kandahar City. Uh, that was where he stayed. They knew that. So why couldn't the military just drop every paratrooper they got on Tora Bora first thing. What are they doing fighting and betting with Dostum, fighting against the Taliban in the North at all? They could have gone straight for, and you're right about the negotiations. I write about that in the book. They're, you know, they could have negotiated, but we're just talking about what happened at Tora Bora here. Like presuming that they had to go and get bin Laden and couldn't have negotiated his extradition for the sake of argument here. They could have gone right for him. They had every reason to guess that that'd be the first place to look. You know, and instead they got, uh, you know, according to Gary Bernson, they knew he was there by the end of November. Right. So two full months into the war before they go, oh, I guess we better head toward the lion's den in Tora Bora and see if we can catch him there. Yeah. I mean, you, you lay out a really good, strong case for why, you know, this is probably intentionally led to happen. And I think that that's. You know, just pushing back on a little bit on, you know, the the reason why a lot of people might have become truthers. I think 
you know, there's so many different gradations of what, you know, could be considered a truth. Or like if you think that the U.S. government lets a lot of this stuff happen on purpose, like letting bin Laden get away for strategic purposes or to keep up this sort of fear campaign, as you put it. And I think that, you know, just let's just say, and I'm sure you could agree with this, Scott, that the, just the idea that 9-11 was never really properly investigated and that it really is sort of the engine that has driven this whole fear campaign. Um, I think that it doesn't even really matter how you land on the, you know, the truther spectrum. It's like there is a very strategic, you know, the, the U.S. government has let so many things happen on purpose and let so many of these quote unquote blunders happen that I think at the very least, a lot of people can agree on just that basic premise that, you know, the U.S. is capable of doing something as horrible as letting bin Laden escape just to keep up, you know, PR for the war on terror. And I don't know, what do you think about that? Do you think there's some middle ground there between someone who's more of a truther like myself and, and your point of view? Well, look, I mean, I don't think there's any, I, and never mind government investigations. You're never going to get that, you know, to tell you the truth. But I think there's plenty of journalism now and, and has been for a very long time really showing that it was Al-Qaeda that did it. But the real point is that they might as well have done it themselves, right? And what difference does it make really, you know, with the level to which they exploited it, the level of cynicism to which they exploited that tragedy in order to get away with bloody murder across the world against a million people and more who didn't do it and had nothing to do with it. And it's, you know, Guinness Book of World Records types crimes against humanity. What can I say? So that's a good reason to be a truther is why wouldn't they have done it, right? But then again, <laughs> you know, look, that's the same reason that of why bin Laden did it. Right. The way he put it was, look, you think that your blood is blood, but our blood is just water. Well, that's not true. And we'll show you. Right. You know, history didn't begin in this century. The Americans and their partners, the Israelis have been killing people, a lot of people for a long time. And, you know, Abby rehearsed at the beginning there after the Iran Iraq war, an entire Iraq war one and a half waged from bases in Saudi Arabia from, you know, all through the 1990s and into the W. Bush years. That was the motive. And bin Laden said it over and over again. You can find all these statements over and over again. Every time he talked to Robert Fisk or any of these other reporters, all he wants to talk about is Palestine and Lebanon. And by the way, this is just interesting. I don't know if anyone wants to make any hay of it or whatever, but this is something Michael Scheuer pointed out a long time ago that when Bill Clinton was helping the Turks slaughter the Kurds in the 1990s, arming them and financing them and turning a blind eye and protecting them diplomatically and everything. Bin Laden didn't say anything about that, even though the Kurds are Sunnis. But he didn't say anything about that. Evidently, I don't know. Um, but then well, when, when the Israelis are killing Shiites in southern Lebanon, Bin Laden stuck up for them. It's like in a way, he's almost like an Arab nationalist here where he, he's not so sectarian when it comes to Sunni and Shia. Um, and in fact, you know, of course, was complaining about the bombing of the no-fly zones and the sanctioning of the Iraqi people who were starving, many of them, of course, the supermajority of that population being Shiites at the time. And he wasn't really being sectarian in that way. He seemed much more like an ethnic nationalist than a religious one in that sense. You know, you, you mentioned Michael Scheuer, who was the head of the, the Alex Station bin Laden unit. And there's so many, you know, just isolating that, there's so many interesting examples of how they could have taken out 
or assassinated bin Laden if they really, you know, really, really wanted to, it seemed like, but they simply did not uh, during the whole Clinton era. But there's a really fascinating juxtaposition here. You mentioned Peter Bergen earlier. He managed to get a sit-down interview with bin Laden, you know, for CNN uh, in 97. And at the same time, you know, uh, well, not at the same time, uh, right before 9-11, in fact, two days before 9-11, uh, the leader of the Northern Alliance was assassinated in what I understand it was sort of a mock TV interview that they lured him into, and he was actually assassinated by people, I don't, I, you can tell me which one it was, if it was the Taliban or Al-Qaeda who was behind that, but it's just so strange that the Taliban was able to lure the Northern Alliance leader into a mock TV interview, assassinate him, and our U.S. intelligence apparatus just, you know, dropped the ball so many times trying to go after bin Laden. But yet CNN was able to walk right into a, you know, compound where bin Laden was and, and interview him on, on television. Bill Clinton gave a speech in Australia to a group of businessmen on September the 10th, 2001. And I don't know how the time zones work and everything, but some few hours before the attack happened here. And Clinton tells the uh, Australian businessmen that, and you can kind of believe this in a sense, he says, the, the biggest mistake or, or uh, regret of my presidency is that I didn't kill Osama bin Laden. That guy's dangerous and he's still out there and I don't know what's going to happen, but it sucks. And he says, but you know, I had one chance to kill him. And that was, uh, you know, at his uh, place in southern Afghanistan. But the problem is, I would have had to carpet bomb this little town called Kandahar in order to get him. And I just Yeah, as if he gave that. a shit about carpet bombing. Yeah, oh wow, we're supposed to believe in the morality of Bill Clinton. And well, and the thing about it is, right, is that the guy lived on what was called the Tarnak Farm. Bin Laden lived on what was called the Tarnak Farm, way on the outskirts of Kandahar, which is not a little town. It's a gigantic city. You know, and it's, you know, the size of Kabul or whatever. It's the original capital of Afghanistan, um, Kandahar City. And there's just no reason in the world that he would have had a carpet bomb Kandahar City in order to bomb one farmhouse, which he wouldn't even have to bomb the neighbor's house to get it. You know, and I'm sure there were women and children in there and that would have been really bad. It would have been better to send in a ground team to take very careful shots. You surround them and don't let them get away and, and get the guy if that's the deal. I'll look the other way for that. Hell, Osama bin Laden, he already killed Americans, you know, for 10 years straight by then. Um, but that was Clinton's excuse. It was like, well, I would have had to drop an A-bomb, you know, kind of, which is just not right, you know? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's hilariously untrue and also just funny that he would pose as like this moral, you know, actor being like, you know what, I, I made the calculated decision and I was like, you know what, I'm not going to carpet bomb this area after his fucking bombing Iraq two to three times a week. You know, I, I, I was shocked to learn that. I didn't realize how relentless the bombing campaign was prior to the sanctions regime. You know, another, this is kind of just out of left field, but it goes back to what you were saying. It's important to debunk that myth about, you know, religious fanaticism in terms of Islam lending itself to this type of terrorist action, you know, that that's something that your book did, which I thought was really good. Also, the myth that suicide bombing is due to deprivation and religion. I guess I was under the impression in a small sense that when you just completely destroy one's 
land and and there is zero hope for the future. And this is all, of course, due to U.S. foreign policy primarily in many places helps galvanize like fanaticism. But as you point out, the actual data points to this tactic almost always being a result of foreign occupation, which completely makes sense um, based on what we're talking about. And, you know, no one, including to this day, no one talks about how hated the U.S. is for supporting Israel. You always hear this patronizing take on the impossibility of peace in the Middle East. You know, meanwhile, this colonial Zionist project of the state of Israel is pretty much the center of a lot of strife <laughs> and anger, especially toward the U.S. Uh, it's not our freedom. It's our foreign policy. I mean, I don't even have a question there, but it's just it's just so incredible to me. Yeah, well, that's my answer is you're completely correct. Um, <laughs> I mean, the problem is, right, that Americans don't know who's occupying who in Israel and Palestine. So if you say, well, look, I mean, even that truth, it, it ain't our freedom. It's our support for Israel. Well, that still sounds like, yeah, because they're a bunch of terrorist anti-Semites who hate Israel for being our friends. And, right, you know, America Jr. or Ford Apache out there, whatever it is that they are to us. And so screw them. But then my experience is that when you explain to people, here's who's occupying who. Right. And here's how they cleansed the land back in 47, 48, and how they could have got away with that. But then here's how they occupied the rest in 67. And here's how nobody believes in the two-state solution anymore. And so now it is just outright apartheid. You get through step one, two, three to people right there real quick. They take the side of the victims. They don't care if the Israeli Jews are whiter. They don't care if, you know, they're supposedly more Western in whatever customs they have or whatever it is. It's not fair what's happening to the Palestinians. It doesn't even matter how horrible Hamas is or how horrible Yasser Arafat ever was or whatever any of these things. It's a civilian population. And once people get, I think, a fair collection of analogies instead of a bunch of bogus ones, or they're shown the map and shown who's occupying who, I think then they understand that. Bin Laden, and look, you can read Bin Laden. There's, the internet, to paraphrase Scheuer, is lousy with Bin Laden articles and quotes and interviews, and you can read them. And oftentimes, the very first thing, Robert Fisk is like, how are you doing today? And he's like, the Israelis are committing war crimes against babies and mothers and children and innocent people in Lebanon and in Palestine. And why won't the world hear their cries? And on and on and on and on. Mm -hmm. And so that's it. And listen, so here's the thing too, man. There are a lot of hawks have said, oh, come on, he's just crying crocodile tears for them. He doesn't care about that. Really? It's his, all of his statements going back through the entire 1990s since he started making his pronouncements are just absolutely filled with statements about Palestine's interviews and his declarations of war. And here's the most important anecdote for the American people to understand, you know, to tell this story about why this matters to us was that... Mohammed Atta, who flew Flight 11 into the North Tower, I'm pretty sure it was, uh, who was, you know, called, characterized as the lead hijacker, the lead organizer of the hijackers in the United States. He was in uh, Germany studying to be, he was from Cairo, Egypt, and he was uh, studying to be an engineering student. And in 1996, uh, after uh, Shimon Peres came to power in Israel, he was continuing uh, uh, Yitzhak Rabin's anti-Iranian turn, and that included an attack on Hezbollah in southern Lebanon and whoever was around, I guess. And he ended up 
uh, Israeli forces during that. Well, first of all, as soon as they declared war uh, and invaded, Mohammed Atta and his buddy Ramzi bin al-Sheib, who is now in Guantanamo Bay, they, well, okay, I shouldn't overstate this. I forget now if bin al-Sheib did as well. Certainly bin al-Sheib was his buddy, but definitely Mohammed uh, Atta filled out his last will and testament right then, which was like a symbolic act, meaning I'm hereby joining the army to fight against the enemy here, whatever it, whatever it takes, right? I'm willing to die for this thing kind of thing. Um, then... Uh, I think it's the next day or two days later after that, because we got the exact date of that. It's all in the books. Um, in fact, there's a book, the book, uh, the primary source here is um, Terry McDermott. And uh, the book is called Perfect Soldiers, where he writes all about this. And so it was, I think, two days later after Muhammad Atta, you know, sort of abstractly joined the army here against us, um, that Israel... Um, perpetrated what's now called the first Kana massacre because they did it again in 2006. But anyway, uh, in this case, it was a UN shelter and they killed 108 women and children. And then it was, I guess, a month or two after that, that bin Laden put out his first declaration of war. And first of all, it's titled Declaration of War Against the Americans Occupying the Land of the Two Holy Places. Yeah, pretty subtle, huh? Um, and, of course, it goes on about bombing. It goes on and on about America bombing Iraq from those bases in Saudi, of course. Um, but then he also talks at length in there about the Kana massacre and the Israelis in Lebanon and blames the Americans for what the Israelis are doing in Lebanon. And he talks about in graphic terms, we'll never forget the images of the children's heads and arms and legs severed from their bodies, et cetera, et cetera, like that. It kind of takes it serious, you see. So then Mohammed Atta and Ramzi bin al-Sheib, they read this and they said, let's do it. That was when they decided to travel to Afghanistan and volunteer their services to bin Laden and his group. That guess what? We're studying in Germany right now. We could probably get a student visa and get to the United States, et cetera, et cetera. So how can we do this? And so this is what, instead of, oh, they hate us because we're free. They hate us because we respect our mothers and sisters or whatever <laughs> it is, right? Was, look. Our french fries. Yeah, they, yeah, exactly. Um, they hate us because America, because we, the Clinton government, which we all hated, right? Um, they, they hate them too. And they hate them for supporting Israel's violence in Lebanon. And that may be confusing to people at first, but it ain't that confusing, you know? It is intense when you, like, just read bin Laden's transcripts. You know, I mean, you mentioned that one infamous interview, uh, what was it, like, 96 or whatever. Um, but it, it's crazy. I mean, a lot of it is just sounds like someone who's, like, <laughs> talking today in, like, the anti-war movement. I mean, minus the kind of religious, you know, undertones to it which you point out was just being used as fuel. You know, it really at its core was about foreign policy. It's just, it's pretty stunning. Yeah, no, look, and if you go back and watch the, um, it's Peter Arnett, Peter Bergen was the producer, but Peter Arnett is the guy interviewing Bin Laden. And then John Miller from ABC News also interviewed him. And both of those are on video and are, you know, for TV production. And so I think it's especially the ABC News report from 98, the John Miller thing. They go on and on and on. Uh, describing this entire thing before they even show the video interview of the guy. And the entire context is they hate us because of our bases in Saudi Arabia that are being used to bomb Iraq and our support for Israel, our support for dictators around the region. 
Nobody said anything about they hate us for our freedom until late 2001. Everybody knew. There was no question about what their motive was. They said what their motive was. In fact, that was David Cross, the formerly great comedian, <laughs> um, uh, had a bit about that where they don't hate us for freedom. What are we, kindergartners? They hate us because of our bases in Saudi and our troops in Saudi Arabia. Right. Oh, how do you well, know that, David? Because that's what they effing said. <laughs> well, you have to ask yourself at a certain point, why are we being treated like kindergartners? Because it is laid out pretty explicitly. And also, like, there was a trial that you talk about in the book where, like, the even the judge was just like, no, like, just ignoring everything that was articulated about U.S. foreign policy. And you just see this pattern repeated over and over again. And we are essentially completely dumbed down to the point where how do we not know this? It, it's absurd. I mean, there's not even a question there. It's just it, it disgusts me. We end the war on terrorism, but we don't end the policy of dominance in the Middle East. Then we're going to keep having terrorist attacks. We have to completely butt out over there. And you know, just recently, as Biden has begun to kind of sort of indicate that he might be a little bit less committed to Saudi Arabia's priorities, they raced to Baghdad to meet with the Ayatollah's men, right, to meet with the Iranians. And they've already started talking. And the more incentive we give them to talk, meaning the less support we give them, the less we take their back when they refuse to talk and negotiate, then the more they're going to do the right thing for themselves. So, um, which is not to say that if America butts out, all Middle East problems are going to resolve themselves, but you can't point at a Middle East problem that ain't our fault <laughs> right now. So you got to at least quit doing the wrong thing first for the right thing to even have a chance, it seems like. Given that we haven't really talked too much about the Biden withdrawal from Afghanistan and the subsequent media reaction to it, which is also... Um, been quite intense to watch. Uh, I, I wanted you to comment on how you felt about what's happening now with the media's reaction to it and what you think of uh, what, you know, what Biden has done so far in that area. And then in addition to that, you know, given what's happening right now with that, and just since it's been so long since you've released A Fool's Errand, um, what would you say, would, you, would there be anything in the book that you'd want to add in there now that it's been, you know, several years since you put it out. And what would that be if there was some kind of addendum you could you could throw into the book now? Or is there some plan to actually do some kind of future pressing where you, where you do add an addendum to it based on, um, you know, events that unfolded since then? I'm not going to go back over it and, and add to it. Um, I could, you know, I could do a summary of how Trump handled it. You know, I... I published that book. I wanted to have it out, you know, very early on so it could be part of the debate before Trump's escalation. Um, and I knew it was coming. I knew it was coming. I finally published the book because I just couldn't wait anymore. Um, and so the book was all, you know, in the future tense. Trump is going to do this and this and this any day now. And then five days later, he made his big announcement of his new surge. And this is, you know, in uh, August, uh, would have been the 21st of uh, 2017. And I went, great, thanks a lot. So I had to go back through the book and I had to change three future tenses to past tenses and then republish the thing, <laughs> which is, you know, I don't know. Anyway, uh, I, I would have liked, I would have preferred to have it out earlier and, and to be even a minuscule part of the debate over whether to do it or not, that anybody out here in the country cares at all and would take his side in resisting the pressure to do it. Um, but he did escalate. He did give in to uh, Madison McMaster and he gave them 
I forget now, guys. Forgive me if it was five or ten thousand more troops. Um, and they sent some Marines to Helmand, and they sent some more Green Berets to Nangahard province to fight against the Islamic State so-called group there um, for a little while. And they vastly escalated airstrikes. I'm pretty sure it's Air Wars. Um, well, definitely Air Wars, but also uh, the Cost of War Project, I think, has a, a good piece about this. Um, just the escalation of the air war and the rise of civilian casualties. I think it's in the low tens of thousands of people who were killed in the air wars just during, what, two years of Trump there. Yeah, it was the highest civilian casualty rate since 2001 during Trump, yeah, from the bombings. Or since 2010, since since the height of the surge under Obama, I think. Mm-hmm. But, uh, sorry, but yeah. Um, but anyways, uh, but then... You know, the truth is that he did, you know, make this absolutely heroic move, which was he hired Zalmik Khalilzad to go over there and make a deal with the Taliban to cut the Kabul so-called government out, which they would always sabotage any agreement. They don't want an agreement. They want America to stay and back them in power, of course. So uh, they finally, you know, abandoned that uh, qualification that it would have to be, you know— um, uh, that the talks would have to include the Kabul government there. And instead, they did this bilateral deal with the Taliban that was very simple. We'll leave, and you promise to keep, and, and we'll have a ceasefire, and at least on the ground, and we'll leave, and you'll promise to keep al-Qaeda out. And they said, well, we'll promise to not let anybody use Afghanistan as a base to launch attacks against any foreign countries. How about that? Which, <laughs> it's amazing that Khalilzad was not able to insist. No, seriously. <laughs> you know, he, he compromised with him on that. Um, although I haven't seen any evidence that there's any real al-Qaeda in Afghanistan in forever. And even the, the hawks, the best informed hawks, will say, we'll check the UN reports. But the UN reports just say, well, somebody told us. And they don't have any evidence or reason to believe or anecdotes or anything. They just say, well, you know, national government intelligence agencies inform us that this is true. Yeah, right. Okay, well, anyway. Um, and then, you know, the media, if you read Reuters about it, they'll say, well, you know, supposedly there are members of Al-Qaeda in the Indian subcontinent. In other words, a new name for Pakistani fighters in Kashmir or something like that, which just has nothing to do with bin Ladenite terrorism against the United States at all. That's They might as well invoke Al-Shabaab in Somalia or something. It's just not the same thing. And, um, you know, I guess that could change, but all I hear is a lot of hot air about a current Al-Qaeda presence in Afghanistan and see virtually no evidence of one whatsoever. And where that ISIS group has popped its head up, the Taliban are the ones who kill them. In fact, you can read an article in the Washington Post from October 2020 where JSOC is flying drones as air cover for the Taliban and helping them fight a war against ISIS in Nangarhar province. And uh, they call themselves the—and they don't even say if it's Delta or Navy SEALs or what. They just say it's a task force. It's a JSOC task force. And they're flying. They call themselves the Taliban's Air Force. And the Americans say, okay, well, fine. Let's make a little mini awakening out of this. And we'll take the Taliban side against essentially these disaffected factions and former members of the Pakistani Taliban is really who the ISIS group is there. Well, you see this a lot. I mean, this completely counterintuitive— Basically, as at the same time in the public perception, they're lumping this all together. But on the ground, 
they are contradictory groups, ideologies that are warring with each other. And, you know, the U.S. is essentially providing air cover for our alleged enemies. And it's just fascinating to see this play out over and over again. I mean, plus Biden basically giving himself the ability to continue bombing Afghanistan. I don't know how that's going to work out in the future. But let's let's move on to Yemen really quickly, because, you know, another big part of our foreign policy is propping up the dictatorial theocratic regimes like Saudi Arabia. You and your work uh, was you really enlightened me about why the U.S. got involved in Yemen in the first place. Um, and especially the counterintuitive nature to the U.S.'s stated goals to fight al-Qaeda in the Arabian Peninsula. I repeated two quotes I found out about through your work on Joe Rogan's show. Uh, but can you elaborate more on why the U.S. war on Yemen was done to, quote, placate Saudi Arabia? Obama told the CIA to launch this drone war that he really wanted to kill al-Qaeda guys in Pakistan and in Yemen which, in fact, ever since they let bin Laden escape from Tora Bora, this is the first time they ever really had fought a war on terrorism and the whole war on terrorism was <laughs> they were to go. And not, not that it was justified. Of course, it caused <laughs> terrible collateral damage or anything, but it was just the first time that that was their actual target. Was I mean, I guess they had made a self-fulfilling prophecy of bin Ladenites in Iraq there for a time. But anyway, um, in this case, they're killing these guys, and it's only making matters worse. It's recruiting more people into their ranks and all that. And, and people should read... Um, you know, it's very brief. Um, Jeremy Scahill in the Nation magazine from pretty sure 2011, I guess, uh, saying Obama's Yemen war backfires or or whatever. Yemen war backfires, something very close to that. And and it's great. It's about how all the collateral damage, of course, just made matters worse. All that blood is just fertilizer for Al-Qaeda's weed growing, you know, kind of thing. Um, and at the same time, they're bribing Abdullah Saleh, who's the uh, president in the capital city of Sana'a, and he's the guy who reunited the country, or united it maybe for the first time, I don't know, um, or reunited, I guess, in the very early 90s, and America supported him ever since then. And um, so Obama's paying him off, and he's paying him in guns and money. Now, Saleh's taking the guns and money, and he's fighting against a group of... Um, Shiites called the Zaydis, uh, who live in the north of Yemen, and their political designation is the Houthis, which is really like a tribal, you know, a family, a powerful family's last name, I guess, um, uh, the Al-Houthis. And they had risen up originally in response to Egyptian and Saudi meddling in the first place, uh, well, I guess Saudi and then Egyptian meddling in the first place back in history. But anyway, but so this group of Shiites, they were fighting with Abdullah Saleh, and he attacked them six times, launched major offensives against them six times, and lost. And so just like America's war in the south of the country and the drone war against al-Qaeda, which was counterproductive, Abdullah Saleh's war against the Houthi Shiites in the north of the country was also very counterproductive and just made them more and more powerful every time they beat him. Interestingly, he was supporting the Muslim Brotherhood faction there called Al-Islah, and the Al-Qaeda group, at the same time he's letting America bomb them, he's using them to fight against the Houthis in the north of the country. And at the same time, he's actually even supporting the Houthis against his own army and the Muslim Brotherhood and Al-Qaeda guys because he's afraid of his army getting a little too big for their britches. So he's actually playing both sides and helping the Houthis fight them too. 
And I got all that in the book. Um, so anyway, uh, that might be why the Houthis always won, because <laughs> he was playing a double game and maybe not calculating it too perfectly. All right, then uh, Manning leaks the uh, cables, and first the Iraq and Afghan war logs, and then the State Department cables come out in uh, late 2010, and this you know, immediately sparks a revolution in Tunisia and in Egypt. And then the whole region says, wow, you can do that. And then there's day of rage protests all over the place. And, and you know, we all know the story it, it went really bad in a lot of places too. But um, when the Arab Spring came to Yemen, what happened was all different factions, you know, uh, you know uh, peacefully descended on the capital city in massive protests and including the Houthis and came and demanded that Salah leave power. And, you know, it was just like the scene in a lot of places around the region at the time. And then, but there were two different assassination attempts against him. And I'm not sure who did that. But on the second one, he was, uh, I guess, pretty severely wounded and had to go to Saudi Arabia for, you know, medical treatment and to convalesce from his wounds. So, and then I guess eventually just went home. Then Hillary Clinton came in with the Saudis and they eased him out of power, basically, gave him an offer he couldn't refuse to get him out. And they replaced him with his vice president, a guy named Mansoor Hadi. Now, Hadi, you know, that was like, okay, according to the Constitution or whatever, but that's not what any of the people in the street wanted at all. And instead of just letting the people of Yemen sort this out themselves, the Americans came to preempt their wishes, essentially, the Americans and the Saudis, and install this guy who would be the America's safe bet, who we wanted to be in charge there. And so he was a really lousy dictator. You know, Saleh was a ruthless guy, but he at least had a talent for you know, run in North Jersey kind of thing. But this guy just didn't. So all he did was make everybody angry. And so he stayed beyond his term without holding new elections. And he um, proposed a strong federalism program that would have essentially cut the Houthis off from the Red Sea, which was extremely important. Um, and he ended all subsidies for fuel, which raised the price of gasoline like 300% or whatever it was. Absolutely outrageous for customers on the street. And on and on like that. I forgot all the different, uh, you know, political sins that he committed, even against his own interests there and his blundering. Um, but he finally provoked. Uh, oh, and then he attacked the Houthis. I guess he thought that would be wise. And he started the fight and attacked the Houthis and they beat him. And then they marched all the way down to the capital city. And this is at the end of 2014. All right. So um, I won't recap just because it would take just as long. But everybody rewind that, listen to that one more time. Okay, then the Houthis um, take the capital city, Sana'a, at the end of 2014. And at this time, importantly, Lloyd Austin, our current Secretary of Defense, was the chair of, uh, or the commander of Central Command, CENTCOM, uh, you know, the military combatant command for, you know, for everything from Afghanistan to, or I guess from Pakistan to uh, North Africa. And um, he says, well, listen, uh, these Houthi guys, and it makes sense that the military would think of it this way, right? They're not the CIA. They're like, hey, these Houthi guys like killing Al-Qaeda guys. So let's help them. And so they did. And this was in the Wall Street Journal. And it's also in Al Monitor in a great piece by Barbara Slavin, who wrote about how um, Michael Vickers, who was the deputy secretary of defense for intelligence, 
came to the Atlantic Council, where she's a member, and gave this big presentation and talked all about it. And then she asked him follow-up questions afterwards and, you know, got quite a bit out of them. And it's very clear that what happened was um, they were, you know, proud to say that they were giving intelligence to the new Houthi government in Sana'a because they like killing al-Qaeda guys. So we give them intelligence to kill al-Qaeda guys with. And then I, I don't know if they were claiming any successes so far or whatever. That was clearly the plan. And then it was just two months later that Barack Obama turned around, stabbed the Houthis in the back, and took al-Qaeda's side against them, for real, and essentially called off, essentially called off the war against al-Qaeda there. Like, technically, they still had a few drone strikes and a few special operations raids against al-Qaeda in the last six years, but come on, man, who's zooming who? They're, these guys are part of the UAE's militia. These guys have been part of the anti-Houthi alliance from the very beginning. The Houthis know that the Al-Qaeda guys would kill them all dead if they could, and I guess vice versa too. So, you know, these are the bitterest of enemies. And the Houthis were the most capable fighters. If anyone was going to be able to eliminate Al-Qaeda in the Arabian Peninsula for the U.S., again, all of the things being equal and accepting the premises of the terror war and the rest of it, I'm just saying, um, these would have been the guys to do it. And instead what happened was Barack Obama was negotiating a nuclear deal with Iran. And as you guys probably know, the Iranians weren't making nukes anyway. They were already in the Non-Proliferation Treaty, and they had already had a safeguarded nuclear program since the early Bush years. And every bit of their nuclear material was accounted for and safeguarded and inspected and locked down by the International Atomic Energy Agency. What they had was a civilian program. And if you want to be a jerk about it, yeah, they have a latent nuclear capability, just like Brazil and Japan. Everybody knows they know how to enrich uranium. And don't make me enrich to weapons grade here, right? You know I have a pistol, and I, and I know how to use it, but all the bullets are in my other pocket. So let's not escalate this conversation further, right? Like, that's kind of the, the message of this latent nuclear capability. And at the same time, it's for their, ele their electricity needs in the country. There's not much of an international export uh, or import market for uranium, which they have a domestic supply of. But people like oil a lot, so they can burn uranium for their electricity and sell the oil for the money. It just makes economic sense to do it that way. Uh, and, and that's really their major motivation for it anyway. But here's the deal. The Israelis and their partisans in America have been pretending to believe that the Iranians are making nuclear weapons. Now, sometimes they, they pretend to believe that there's a secret nu nuclear weapons program that we just know is there somewhere. And sometimes they pretend that they just have never heard of the Nonproliferation Treaty or the IAEA before and pretend that for all we know, the Iranians have, uh, you know, are making nuclear weapons right now. Or they pretend to believe in ridiculous propaganda, for example, the um, so-called smoking laptop that was said to be uh, stolen from an Iranian scientist and leaked to the IAEA. But instead, it was shown later to have been a forgery that was perpetrated by the Israelis and given to the uh, German members of the IAEA by the mujahideen e communist terrorist cult of insane lunatics. So... Um, and, and Gareth Porter, of course, has, you know, taken the lead, but many others have also done really great criticisms of the information in that laptop and show why the Israeli made some pretty good but wrong educated guesses when they forged that thing that later were proved to, you know, really make no sense and et cetera like that. But anyway, so 
Obama thought, I think correctly, uh, especially when you look at the amount of pressure the Israelis were pouring on in his first term, uh, assassinating all these nuclear scientists and all this stuff, which you guys might remember, Obama leaked that to NBC. Like it was clearly the White House told NBC to run this giant thing about the MEK and how horrible they were and about how we don't appreciate the Israelis using them to murder these scientists. That was a pretty big deal. You don't see an article like that in NBC News or something like that in NBC News unless it's meant to be there in that, you know, kind of official pressure giving kind of way. Um, so they were worried the Israelis might really start a war and drag us into it. And so what they did was, and maybe the Saudis, I don't know, so what they did was they decided we're going to have this whole new deal, this extra layer of inspection regime on top of Iran, and we're going to have them swear forever that they won't make nukes, and we're going to have them expand inspection access and restrict their program further. And in exchange, we'll give them sanctions relief and some of their money back that Jimmy Carter had stolen from them back in the 70s. People talk about the pallets of money. That was true. They were given this cash, but it was money that Jimmy Carter had stolen from them, and we're giving it back to him with no interest after all this time. I mean, I've said this before, but I do believe it. I hate John Kerry. Man, I can't stand John Kerry. But you got to give him credit for a deal. We're listen, all we're going to do after you capitulate to our every demand, all we're going to do is we're going to stop waging economic war on you, which they never really lived up to and did anyway with the sanctions. And we're going to give you your own money back that we stole 40 years ago. And you're going to call that a win, pal. And got them to accept that and shake hands on that. Are you kidding me? But then the Saudis got mad. And the Saudis said, well, hey, it looks to us like you want to tilt back toward the Persians. And, you know, so we're mad. And UAE is mad. And we want you to reassure us that you're on our side. And lo and behold, look, a pro-Iranian Shiite faction, which they're just friends with Iran. They're not really tight allies. Uh, certainly not sock puppets of the Iranians or anything. But look, the Houthis just took Sinai. So you can prove your loyalty to us by helping us bomb them. And then, of course, Operation Decisive Storm ended up lasting six and a half years so far. And they've been absolutely unable to drive the Houthis from power with this war. It was supposed to be quick and easy, but in fact ended negotiations. Because the Houthis know they can't just rule the whole country. They had to compromise with people. So they were ready to write a new constitution and have a bicameral legislature where I guess they would control the upper house, but everybody else could share the lower house and this kind of thing. I don't know exactly what it was going to look like, but that's what they were working on at the, you know, in other words, internal peace within the country, internal compromise before America, uh, before Barack Obama told um, the uh, Saudis to start it. And by the Saudis, of course, I mean Crown Prince Bonesaw there, Mohammed bin Salman, who at that time was just the 29-year-old brand-new defense minister and deputy Crown Prince of Saudi Arabia. And he launched this war for obvious political reasons, which uh, Patrick Coburn, I think, did the best piece on this for The Independent back then. This would have been in, you know, March or April of uh, 2015 that, you know, this was all internal politics, right? Like the libertarians say, public choice theory, where there's no national interest. There's just the interest of the individual people in charge of holding the power and what they want to do. And so for Mohammed bin Salman's purposes, launching this war would, you know, put hair on his chest or whatever, right? Would make him the man and move him up in terms of stature and power inside the ruling circles of the princelings. 
And which is exactly what happened in Bagger. It was not long after that that he made his big move and arrested all of his competitors, including his cousin, Mohammed bin Nayef, who had been the crown prince and took his place and named himself crown prince and now is de facto king of the country. His father is, um, you know, and I think in his late 80s and is completely senile and dependent upon him to run everything. And so it worked for him. Um, but then, you know, of course, um, to describe the American role here, um, it's what the Obama people call leading from behind, right? So they haven't sent, they have sent American trainers very recently on the ground there. Brits have been on the ground, but essentially very marginal role for special operations forces on the ground. Um, but uh, what's mostly consisted of is, first of all, providing all the planes in the first place and continuing to sell them more, but also all the bombs, which, you know, is thousands and thousands, tens of thousands of bombs that have to be replenished constantly their stocks, and then all the maintenance and the care and feeding of their F-15 Eagles that the Princelings are flying over there, which is extensive and takes all American Air Force personnel and contractors to take care of every bit of that. And then uh, providing the intelligence on the Houthis, which I guess means satellite intel and whatever else they have on what's going on in, um, in uh, uh, Yemen, and even the logistics uh, well, and by intelligence, too, that means and helping them pick their targets, you know, who they're bombing. And then the logistics is all, you know, just running the the operation, getting the planes off the ground and landed safely and all these other things that the princelings won't do any of this stuff themselves. The Americans have to do it all for them. And if they just got the prestige of flying and dropping a bomb on some lady and flying home again. Um, and then, of course, in the first few years of the thing, um, the Americans were supplying all the midair refueling. And if they're doing that now, I guess it would be a secret. But the official story, at least, is that the uh, Boeing Corporation sold the Saudis enough mid-air refueling tankers that they don't need us to do it anymore. After the first, what, three or four years of the war that they, uh, you know, sometime during the Trump years, the uh, Saudis allegedly took over that role. But, you know, to the, uh, I know a Yemeni reporter named Nasser Arabi who says, you know, to them, it's the American-Saudi war. They're under no illusions. These are F-15 Eagles. You know, these are American planes dropping American bombs, and the entire thing is made possible by the Americans in the very literal senses I just described, but also in the international politics sense. None of this could be taken place, just like as we talked about with Israel's war crimes in Palestine and in Lebanon. None of this, never even mind the money and the weapons, but none of it could exist without our diplomatic cover for them that they don't have to obey the law in our liberal rules-based world order. They can do whatever we say they can do. Just like cops in America can break any law against the civilian population, and it doesn't apply to them. Somehow they've washed their hands clean of even leading any sort of war effort in terms of Yemen. I mean, really, it's kind of on the back burner, and people are just like, oh, it's the Saudi led war. And you always see that frame that way where it's just like, oh, the U.S. just has kind of like a, you know, just our backing of Saudi Arabia, I guess, can lend itself to that phrase. But but really, it's way more extensive than that, Scott. The classic diffusion of responsibility, right? Like a lynching mm -hmm. where everybody kills <laughs> the guy a little bit. And so it's not anybody's, any one person's fault kind of a thing. They bomb essentially all kinds of economic targets that they possibly can, and particularly food. So they target 
you know, the water and the electricity and the sewage and the garbage and the hospitals, and even in the midst of the worst cholera outbreak in recorded history, which means worse than Iraq under Bush Sr. and Clinton, uh, when they refused to give them chlorine and other supplies to clean their water um, and all of that, and, and, and did target their water supplies. You know, Colin Powell did that in Iraq War I, uh, did that to the Iraqis. But anyway, um, uh, they, so they blow up all of the, you know, basic infrastructure in terms of, you know, public utilities type things, right? Water, electricity, sewage, garbage, and that kind of thing. And then they bomb all the marketplaces and like, for example, a car dealership or a truck dealership, anything like that. They take out all of that. And then also they bomb the farms they bomb the grain silos. They bomb the irrigation ditches. They bomb the flocks of sheep in the fields and the horses in their stables. They bomb the fishermen's boats. They, you know, they do everything they can to absolutely make the people of the country suffer and starve to death, which they are doing in spectacular ways. And it's a country which was already the poorest country in the Middle East, has very little developed oil resources, uh, just a little bit. And of course, the government controlled it and kept all the money and the people were very poor. And you won't be surprised, and this is also for Martha Mundy, um, you won't be surprised to learn that it was due to previous gangsterization by the IMF and the World Bank that the uh, Yemenis were so uh, dependent on foreign imports for their food as the U.S. Navy's helping the Saudis lay siege, lay, you know, a blockade on their country. And what had happened was the IMF and the World Bank said, hey, listen, um, instead of growing sorghum and millet and these other kind of sustenance crops, what you should do is you should go, you should grow more cotton and more coffee and export it to the world market. Then you'll be rich and then you'll be eating Florida oranges and, and you know, Brazil steaks and it'll be great. Welcome to global capitalism, which is great until the Americans come. Well, first of all, it's not great when governments are making those decisions because they're not going to make the right calculations at all. But then especially in this case, it meant that once the Americans lay a uh, naval blockade on their country and no international corporations can ship food to them, it means they lay down and die. It means that they don't have the food to sustain their population. And of course, they've tried to make adjustments now under the threat of bombing and grow less coffee and cotton and try to grow more food for themselves to survive. But people have died by the hundreds of thousands. This is the crux of it, Scott, is the naval blockade. So as much as Biden wants to go out and declare an end to combat operations, all of it's kind of null uh, and void when you look at the actual thing that's facilitating the famine, which is the naval blockade primarily. Of course, the direct targeting of civilian infrastructure exacerbated that to extreme degrees. But this is really the core of the problem right here. Um, and you've, you know, elucidated this very, uh, very well. Everyone, please uh, check out, you know, your lectures. You had this really great talk at Porkfest, which I recommend people um, listen to. Also, you've given numerous talks just about Yemen. You have a weekly radio show that you've covered this topic multiple times. But let's move on to China, because as you earlier, as you mentioned earlier, this is like kind of where it's all going is this great power, you know, this great power competition doctrine. Um, you know, you went on Tim Pool's show recently and gave what I thought was a really strong response to this often peddled talking point that China is constructing their own empire through their capital expansion in Africa and beyond. And if the U.S. minimized its military footprint, China would take its place as the world's military 
hegemon. And Robbie, I know that you have have been covering this a lot as well. Yeah, Scott, I mean, obviously, I, I've noticed you've been talking more about this subject recently as well. And we originally talked about the subject last time you came on here in regards to Afghanistan. I mean, I think it was one of the first times I had heard of the Xinjiang province. And what are your thoughts just on the media, you know, getting more and more focused on this idea that China is, you know, a threat to us? Um, and as, as specifically uh, with the Uyghurs, I mean, I, I know we spoke with probably a little bit about that last time you were on here, but I mean, do you think there's still there is still a dimension to Afghanistan that played some role in this great power competition against China. And, you know, what do you also think about the media hysteria saying that China is going to, you know, jump in now and occupy Afghanistan? I'm, I'm starting to hear that. <laughs> and also just like the general sense that, that I just laid out, which is like China is going to replace us. And that's why we need to expand militarily and keep 800 bases or whatever. Back at the end of the Cold War, the uh, Wolfowitz Doctrine was we won't allow any near-peer competitors anywhere in the world, and we won't even let any regional alliance of powers come anywhere near equaling our power. All in the name of world peace and the liberal law and rules-based international order of baby blue flags and friendship and everything. But uh, if anybody tries it, we'll kill them first. Right. That's the doctrine. But then, you know, kind of countervailing that was uh, Charles Krauthammer said, well, this is our unipolar moment. And the idea was we got to seize the opportunity to make the world the way that we want it before. And everybody recognizes this, even Charles Krauthammer, the rest of the world gets rich and, you know, their power begins to become more equal to ours. Anyway, I mean, here we are, you know, 30 years later, we still have the world's most powerful economy, despite how rigged and messed up it is. Um, but that, you know, there's going to be other powers rising in the world. Eventually, the Ch Chinese capitalism is going to start working for them. They're just really getting going then. Um, but uh, and in India and in Brazil and in you know, well, the EU will still be the EU and we'll try to stay allies with them, but maybe we'll have to deal with, you know, their rising power as a rival to ours. And some, so this is, this is inevitable that we're going to live in a multipolar world. The question then was, what can we do to shape it, to make it the way we want it before it's that way? So it's that way, sort of, kind of on our terms or the terms that we would prefer, what, you know, but in other words... Like, what did you think was going to happen when you sent Milton Friedman over there to encourage these people to abandon Maoism and instead adopt the to get rich is glorious policy? Uh, you're going to increase the gross domestic product of that country by a million percent. And that's what's happened. And now if you're not a nationalist and, and you're not looking at this from, you know, great power competition point of view for a second, but just on a humanitarian level, this is in a way, depending on exactly how you measure it, it might be actually the greatest thing that ever happened, if you think about it, where the Maoists completely destroyed that society, reduced it just absolutely to the ground, starved people to death by the tens of millions. And then Mao finally died, and the right wing of the Communist Party took over and said, okay, you can own property and trade in it again. 
And so it's a very entrepreneurial type society. And so, you know, by legalizing trade, and I know you guys are leftists, but there's still a lot of truth in this. You got to admit anyway or whatever. I'm not trying to argue with you, but I'm just saying that what happened was, and, and this is, you can find all the testimony of people who will tell you they saw it happen right before their eyes, where Shanghai goes from this tiny little backwater town to Dallas plus Houston or something, some unbelievable megalopolis of wealth and the greatest increase in the standard of living in the most number of people in the shortest amount of time that's ever happened. It's really a glorious thing. It really is a wonderful thing. And then, so yes, that means that they can afford a bigger army and that they can now afford a few more battleships um, and that sort of thing. So you could take that as what they call the Thudicity's trap, where when there's a rising empire, the old empire has to fight it, you know? But I just think that that sounds like a self-inflicted wound to me, right? Um, and I'm not sure, I'm not at all convinced Although there's, you know, I got a lot to learn about this topic, to be sure. But I'm not at all convinced that China is, you know, preparing now to become a military hegemon anywhere, but at least in their, you know, very near periphery and, you know, the waterways around their country. But are they going to, you know, try to adopt a new policy of just dominating and terrorizing Japan and South Korea and Vietnam all the time? I don't think that they are. They are a threat to Taiwan, but I don't care about that. I'm sorry. I, you know, and, and by the way, the American policy is held for 50 years <laughs> that, that, you know, Nixon decided that, look, in fact, I can't remember who I read about this said, I'm sorry, I'm rambling and taking so long. Somebody I just read recently said, Nixon took a pad of paper and he said, what they want, what we want. And one of the things was they, oh, it was Paul Pilar, I think wrote this in the national interest. And what they want was they want us to stop pretending that the right wing government, the nationalist government in Taiwan is the real government of China. I mean, this is crazy. And so he recognized that the government in Beijing is not just the government of all of mainland China, come on, but also the legitimate government of Taiwan, too. Because why? Because Taiwan is really not a core American interest in the world. This doesn't really matter that much to us other than for like sentimental reasons or something. Who is the ruling regime there? So they changed the policy to say, look, we recognize that Beijing is the rightful government of Taiwan. However, we oppose any violent resolution to this conflict. We'd like to see it resolved peacefully. And then that's what they call strategic ambiguity. There is no promise that America will come to the defense of Taiwan. Since 74, I guess. Um, and then Carter eventually, I guess, officially recognized Beijing as the government of, uh, of both. Uh, it was Nixon sort of informally did, and I think Carter put the, fin the final ink on that or whatever. But that was that long ago, and the peace is held for 50 years. And, you know, Gareth Porter, the great, and if, if he's not everyone listening's favorite reporter, then you need to learn about him because, man, he's good. Um, and Gareth Porter wrote this great thing about there used to be what they called the dual deterrence policy. Hey, China, we'd really like it if you don't attack Taiwan. And hey, Taiwan, shut up in your mouth about, you know, your big, tough independence from China that you can't back up and that we are not promising to help support here. So and that they've abandoned that. Now they would rather take a tougher stance toward China and warn them, you better not. And. 
and now they've backed off telling the Taiwanese nationalists that y'all better tone it down about all this independence because we don't have your back. Now they've stopped saying that. And, and I really don't know, you know much more than this about it, but what he said was their current leader in Taiwan represents those more secessionist uh, interests in, um, in their party structure there and that her almost certain to be success, successor is more radical than her on the issue. And that could be a real problem. But um, in terms of like, do, do I think that China is going to invade Vietnam and Laos and Cambodia? Are they going to invade Japan and take it? They're going to invade the Koreas or they're going to invade Mongolia. I guess they could invade Mongolia. I don't know what anybody's going to do about that if they invade Mongolia. Um, but for people saying that they think that they're ready to invade Afghanistan, I mean, to me, I like that, that they're bringing that up because that to me just shows how ridiculous the whole idea is, right? You think that yeah. the, the Chinese, after watching the Soviets and the Americans do nothing but wound themselves after 10 and 20 years of, you know, bitter fighting in that country, that what they want to do is try to replicate that? And look at what China has done this whole time. They send little guys with briefcases around everywhere, making money, making deals, shaking hands, not pointing machine guns at people and threatening them. And, you know, the Americans, this is what Gareth Porter in his book about Vietnam, he calls it, it's, the book is titled, The Perils of Dominance. And what it means is America is too powerful, especially at the time, compared to the Soviet Union. And they thought, well, of course we can just do whatever we want in Vietnam. What's Ho Chi Minh going to do about it? It's like the evil galactic empire versus the Ewoks. They can't stop us. When, of course, like, yeah, they can. You know, it comes down to it. It's their homeland and pretty rough terrain, too. And there's only so much your ATSTs can do in that situation, you know? I like that you you're just like, well, why would China do that? Like, why would anyone look at what the U.S. has done for the last 20 years and be like, yeah, that's what I want to do is completely fuck everything up. And for no benefit, you know, strategically to actually for imperialism's sake. I mean, it's it's absurd. Just crazy that, that people just put this hypothetical notion that if we weren't the world's empire, another another entity would be that would be worse on human rights or whatever. It's like, well, it's pretty incomparable looking at our goddamn record. So that's all that's happening, right? Is this is where we've gone from unipolar world to more of a multipolar world. And this is the panic. And then under the panic, you're only supposed to conceive of whatever rising power as trying to completely replace us in the world rather than recognizing the multipolar nature of the world as it is. And there are people who are even convinced that, of course, the Chinese are coming here. Right? They're going to build 10,000 troop ships and send them all across the Pacific Ocean and land in California and, and take over the whole country or some kind of thing. Because at this point, it's like Saddam Hussein and his giant human shredder. Like, we're just making up stuff to believe in because it's scary and fun. And, you know, if you uh, really don't know anything about it, then, you know, why not? Right? But there's this great piece um, at the Mises Institute um, by a guy named Mullen. And what he says in there is essentially China's already an overextended empire, just like America, right? They're trying to rule East Turkestan or what they call the Xinjiang province there, where the Uyghur Muslims live, who are a restive population to say the least and cause a lot of trouble for the dominant, uh, you know, Han Chinese ruling faction there. They, of course, have the perennial problem of the Tibetans. 
uh, that they're trying to rule. And then he just talks about like, hey, man, have you ever looked at the Gobi Desert on Google Earth? Right. There's a lot of China that's just worthless land. They have very little oil, uh, very little raw materials. They're entirely dependent on global supply chains for every single thing that they do. And it just makes no sense in the world to think that they're going. I mean, even the costs of attacking Taiwan. When the whole world puts sanctions on them and turns their back on them and tries to restrict trade against them, raise tariffs against them, try to figure out ways to punish them for that, that could cost a lot more than Taiwan is worth on a balance sheet, you know, where it just makes no sense for them to do that. And then everybody knows they want to build this Belt and Road Initiative, which, you know, ultimately the pipe dream, at least, is a highway and electricity and fiber optic and railway and you name it, the works from Shanghai to Lisbon, right? All the way across Eurasia. And, but at the same time, we're supposed to believe that they're willing to now go to war against the Muslims in their own country and against all of their Muslim neighbors in Afghanistan and what, Uzbekistan and the rest um, in Central Asia there in order to build their their highway through. It sounds like that doesn't make any sense at all for them to do that. The only thing that would make sense if they're going to build that highway is for them to pass out money, you know, as much as they can and try to buy the love of people or, you know, at least the local governments who to provide security for their highway. Otherwise, how are you going to invest a billion zillion dollars in a highway if you can't rely on it to not get blown up by bin Ladenites all the time or just local, you know, hillbillies with, you know, old Soviet shells or whatever they want to do, right? It's like America building a highway in Afghanistan. What makes that worth the investment? It's got to be based on peace and cooperation and all of that. And, you know, then the other thing is because they have such a politicized economy on the highest level anyway, with massive amounts of inflation and things like that, that you can essentially characterize all of that as distortions in their economy and massive Greenspan type bubbles that, you know, will then come due. And they'll, you know, there are all, every reason to believe that they have plenty of economic crashes and all these things coming. And, you know, so the most, the scariest thing I guess I heard about China that makes sense to me was somebody said, and I don't know that this is true, so I'm sorry, don't anybody learn this from me. It was just something that I heard from a guy, but it sounded like he knew what he was talking about anyway, about how there's been more than a million Chinese have moved to South Africa. He might've said Southern Africa. I think he said South Africa, but there's like a massive population transfer going on. There are a billion Chinese people. So you could move a lot of them and not miss them. <laughs> you know, remember Mao said, I don't care about getting into nuclear war. We, we could lose a few million people and still have plenty of millions left over, <laughs> you know? Um, so, you know, now that's the kind of thing where you could call that an invasion of sorts, right? If it's not an army, it's just, hey, they're just immigrants, but there's millions and then millions. If that continues on, millions and millions and millions where that becomes like kind of an ethnic replacement colonialization type policy in Africa, I could see that being really bad for some Africans. But, you know, the fact of the matter is this world's going to keep spinning around for the indefinite future. And it just cannot make sense that the middle part of North America is the cops. I mean, of all people, the Americans, the Declaration of Independence people, we got to be the cops. We got to be the world empire that enforces the law that says countries aren't allowed to invade each other or will invade them. But then 
uh, or and a million other laws too. But then, by the way, none of those laws apply to us, and we can invade whoever we want and all of these things. Um, you know, it sounds like a problem for the Africans to the degree that that's really even true. But also look at what the Americans are doing in Africa. They're sending special operations forces out to protect all their friendly governments against anyone who might oppose them. Whether, you know, the governments they're supporting are the good guys or not, and would probably, if you flipped a coin, would be more often than not, would the rebels are probably the least worst guys in the situation, might explain why they're rebels in the first place. Not always, but what Americans... Which people would you trust to sit on the U.S. National Security Council in Biden's White House and decide which governments in Africa out of, what, 87 nations should we be propping up and embedding our special operations forces with their military and all of these things? Who could believe that that's anything but trouble? And then if you listen to them, they say it all the time. You can, you know, type in AFRICOM general's name and then China and hit enter in your favorite brand of search engine. And you'll see where they say all the time that, yeah, you know, we call it counterterrorism, but really we're here for China. Well, oh yeah. What sense oh, does yeah. that even make anyway? What are they going to do to keep China out, you know? They lay this shit out pretty explicitly. A kind of bone-chilling passage from Fool's Aaron was just Brzezinski just clearly articulating exactly what, you know, what imperialism's mandate should be. I know my brother wants to get into the Kagans to close this out, but I just want I I can't let you go without just asking about this, I mean, obviously the war on terror has exponentially created more terrorism around the world. Uh, there was a few hundred al-Qaeda, al-Qaeda meaning the base, not even really a coherent organization, ending in this kind of three-year stint of of the this caliphate that Rush Limbaugh and so many others had fever dreams about for decades. And it's quite surreal that U.S. foreign policy essentially gave them exactly what, you know, <laughs> what, the, what these people were fantasizing about, fear-mongering about for so long. Um, your book, Enough Already, It's Time to End the War on Terror, really says it all. I haven't read this one yet, but I'm excited to because it's such a normalized notion. The concept of endless war, occupations, sanctions against our alleged enemies, whether it's those who don't bow down to the petrodollar or U.S. imperial agenda, it's this global system Every other world power either works directly with the U.S. empire to impose these policies or acquiesces out of fear of retaliation. As I said before, there's no robust anti-war movement. Um, what the U.S. does outside of its borders barely registers to the average American trying to make ends meet. There's no anti-imperialist politicians bringing these issues up in Congress. And there's an extreme lack of foundational knowledge about the criminality that our government is doing in our name, Scott and, and sadly, you know, my brother and I supported Ron Paul in 2008. He was the only politician that was talking about closing down the bases and ending the war on terror. Now, and I feel like there was a lot more room, and it could just be, you know, my own naivete, but it seems like there was more room to work together on issues in terms of libertarians and leftists. Um, you know, we saw Kucinich and Ron Paul, but that's just in the political sphere. I mean, it seemed like there was a more openness now it seems like it's becoming more difficult to have these conversations constructively without weaponizing identity politics or calling someone a tanky or a Nazi or something. You know, I mean, I believe capitalism is driving endless war and needs to be replaced for the sake of the future of humanity. Um, but, but I mean, what do you think about the idea of libertarians or leftists and leftists, excuse me, or socialists working together on ending the U.S. empire and war on terror if we fundamentally disagree on what's driving it. Well, look, I mean, 
I think even if you bring conservatives into this, that we mm-hmm. all agree that it's the corruption of American capitalism that is in great measure driving this. Nobody says, other than, I don't know, Max Boot or something, no one would say that Ike Eisenhower's a kook. There's no such thing as the military-industrial complex. Sure there is. And everybody understands, you know, how it works. Like The centrality of Lockheed lobbying to it all, I guess, is debatable. But everybody knows it's wrong, just like everybody knows it's wrong the way Wall Street is rigged and the way, you know, the financial system is rigged and, and for that matter, you know, the way government employees like the extremely rich can break the law and get away with whatever they want, um, including like government officials who create massive financial crises uh, and things like that. So, um, you know, I don't think it really matters if we differ on, um, you know, capitalism itself always leading to that or some kind of thing like that. I don't know. I, I think you could have a free market system without a military industrial complex at all if you could get rid of the thing in the first place somehow. <laughs> but, uh, <laughs> you know, the problem is, uh, yes, concentrated wealth will buy political power, and that's always a problem. But, um, you know, without debating the, you know, entire uh, ownership of means of production here and everything, I think that there's plenty of common ground to say that corrupt Wall Street interests and corrupt military industrial complex interests and contractors and the rest and and their kind of dirty relationship with the state, all that should be exposed and overthrown. And now I look at libertarianism as not the left or the right at all. I think what we're going through now as a country is that we have... um, you know, the complete failure of so-called, you know, moderate centrism, which you could look at, you know, John McCain and Joe Biden and the Clintons and Bushes as representing that, where it's their, what they think of as moderation and centrism is, you know, really this terrible extremism where they're bipartisan on every bad thing in the world that they want to do and never on stopping something that's wrong. It's always to do something horrible and wrong. And so in the 30 years since the end of the Cold War, and especially since W. Bush and the terror wars, the Clintons and the Bushes and Obama's just Hillary Clinton, of course, you know, and these factions, they drove America to the ground on all of this. And, um, and, you know, that's why Obama was elected in the first place, because at least image-wise, he was the exact opposite of Bush. You and, and the two of you saw through it. Uh, Ron Paul looked just like Bush on the surface, but in fact had the real substance there um, in opposition. But the people, you can at least respect the fact that they didn't want to elect Hillary Clinton. They want to elect a black guy named Hussein Obama <laughs> in order just to show how they really— regret that Bush had been elected and reelected such as it was and that and and they wanted the world to know that they were sorry about it kind of thing even back then that was why the American people did that you know they they didn't want that but so they'd done such a lousy job with all of their economic crises and their wars and all of their corrupt bailouts and and all of that that then Trump of course was elected as the antidote to Biden the same way by uh, I mean to Obama same way Obama was supposed to be the cure to Bush um, to come in there, you know, on the margin, people wanted to see somebody to come in there who, you know, at least if he's not one of them, like if he's a black guy from Hawaii or Illinois or Kenya or wherever he is, or if he's a real estate tycoon from TV game shows or whatever, at least he's not one of them. So maybe he cares about me, right? And then the answer was, hey, he's still Donald Trump's all you're dealing with. But, but he's, so in a, I'm sorry, I'm off track. My point is this. 
the Bushes and the McCains and the Bidens and the Clintons and all them, they discredited moderate centrist, you know, liberalism, right liberalism. And now it's being replaced in America with much more radical leftist socialist views and much more radical right-wing nationalist type views when what we really need is freedom. What we really need is libertarianism. And on the basic level, like one of the main things there would be decentralization of power out of D.C., back toward the states. You don't even need a revolution and overthrow the Constitution for that. You could just go by the Constitution and decentralize power back to the states so that people in Oregon can live their way and people in Alabama can live their way without having to hate each other so damn much over everything, which is the main core of the culture war is the fight over power. And we, and we can't let the other guys win. Think what they would do of it and all of that. But if the answer is political power, there's not that much at stake, then we won't have to fight so bad. And I think that the libertarian answer on all of these things, all of the worst and most important issues in America, including the lockdowns, the wars, the corrupt crony capitalism, uh, the police state, all of the drug wars and the militarization and the spying and all of these things. I think the libertarian answer is so damn good that it ought to be good enough for all good leftists and liberals. And it ought to be good enough for all good conservatives, too, to agree on. And you don't have to become libertarians. You just have to say essentially like, geez, they kind of make a good point that that's a good list of priorities of the worst things going on in our country that we all want to stop. So. You know, to paraphrase Ron Paul, which he never said this, but it's essentially what he said just by standing there, was if you like your identity, you can keep it. You don't have to move left. You don't have to be Michael Moore spit to become anti-war. You could be like me, a Republican from Texas, and still be anti-war. And people said, oh, I can? Great. Right? I can just change my mind about this one big stupid thing. Right? So, you, you know, I'm not asking people to become libertarians. I'm just asking people to listen to us when we say can't we all as Americans all agree that this is the real priority, right? Is, you know, ending the, uh, the privatization of all of this government-generated profit, you know, driven by these corrupt industries, you know, on Wall Street and then in the military-industrial complex and all that. And then that, to me, is saving real liberalism, declaration of independence liberalism, the kind where what matters the most is freedom. And then... With freedom, we can work out all this other stuff among ourselves without having to be dictated to by overlords of one ideology or the other. Well said. Um, it does seem like we're getting it, it's getting increasingly hard to even have these conversations, which is why I'm grateful to have it with you, Scott. But uh, I'll let my brother close this out. You mentioned this idea of how there's a panic that sets in when the U.S., you know, feels like it's losing its complete and utter dominance, having this gigantic military presence all across the world. And there's a, you know, there's a particular group of people, sort of the the Reaganite, you know, era neocons, and, and even the, the neocon generation before that, like the Irving Crystals and the Donald Kagans. I mean, you have also extensively looked into the Kagan family in general. They're, you know, a family of unelected policymakers most of them aren't even technically, they don't even technically have government roles, but they have an enormous influence over the way the Pentagon behaves, what kind of military efforts um, have been made in the Middle East. And Don Kagan, uh, the patriarch of the Kagan family, recently passed away, the grandfather of neoconservatism, so to speak, along with Irving Crystal. Well, I guess you could throw Leo Strauss in there and a few other people. But 
give us like a a little bit of an overview for people who might not know who he is. I mean, some of our listeners are already pretty familiar with him, but what would you like people to know about Donald Kagan and his influence on foreign policy? And also comment on the sort of the uniqueness about what makes him unique compared to other neocons. And I'll just throw in for myself um, this idea that he's sort of an ancient war historian that acts like, you know, because I've studied war going back, you know, uh, millennia, I know what's best for war now kind of approach, which is sort of different from other neocons. But how do you how do you see him and, and his legacy? Well, I mostly know about his boys. I would have to defer to you on uh, Donald. Uh, <laughs> the worst thing I know about him is that clip that you unearthed of him and uh, Fred, Fat Nick Fred, on September the 12th, saying that Bush ought to send, what, the Delta Force to uh, kill Yasser Arafat and the Palestinian Authority? This uh, kind of madness. Um, but otherwise, I would bet, here's my cheat, I would bet that Justin Raimondo wrote a great single standalone column about him somewhere, or at least <laughs> a column about the neocons that would include quite a bit about Donald, because he was the one who really knew every bit of this stuff. Um, but, you know, his sons, they bear a lot of responsibility. You know, um, Robert Kagan, as a co-author of Toward a Neo-Reaganite Foreign Policy, with William Crystal, but also like kind of co-organizer of that group of out of power neocons in the second half of the 1990s there was really all important. And, you know, he stayed just a writer all along. He didn't join the government and help, you know, Doug Fife actually give the bad orders or all of that. But he was, I think somewhat like Bill Crystal. It's, People think of Crystal as more of a clown now, but back then, the idea was more like, hey, this is a serious guy who gives, like, who's not a Republican partisan, but who, like, has, you know, these kind of understandings and principles that supersede partisanship. How noble. And they've been thinking very hard about what should be done, and what should be done is a big arms buildup so that we can make the world the way that we want it to be. And that, yeah, we're going to need to find some enemies to fight. And Hussein makes a good one and this kind of thing. And, um, in fact, I don't think Iraq is even mentioned in Toward a Neo-Reaganite Foreign Policy. But, you know, clearly he was a co-founder then of, um, of uh, the Project for New American Century and mm -hmm. was part of all the AEI workshops and all of those kinds of things as they were lying us into war and was a major expert on TV testifying to it all. And, you know, a big part of this, right, is, you know, Bush and Rove and Cheney and Rumsfeld, they all really wanted to do this. They're the ones who are really responsible, of course. But it really is important that they had all of these, you know, so-called egghead, you know, brilliant guys from academia here, the neocons, to say that, oh, yeah, no, we've gamed this out, and it's going to be great. You know, you don't really need to read all up on all of this stuff, because we have kind of for you, and we're telling you that, oh, yeah, it's going to be great, especially Paul Wolfowitz. Um but, you know, Kagan was one of those major voices in, and, you know, in the new book, in my Iraq War II chapter, I name names of the neocons inside the government and inside the think tanks and inside the, you know, writing at the major papers and magazines and testifying yep. on TV about this, you know, as, and they call themselves the cabal. It ain't my fault. You know, <laughs> that's what they were about. It's trying to lie us in a war. And, um, and then, you know, uh, Fred Kagan, of course, his wife, 
Um, Kimberly Kagan, I guess, gets the credit as the founder for the study of the Institute for the Study of War, um, which he's associated with and employs Jack Keane and all these guys. And again, you know, military industrial complex money, of course. And he was one of the primary, you know, I won't say intellectual authors of the surge. He was, you know, essentially providing cover. You know, uh, Pollock and O'Hanlon are another couple of great examples of this. Uh, these two guys from the Brookings Institution who were, look at us, we're Bill Clinton Democrats. We're moderate, centrist, um, liberal type sort of Democrats. And, and we think that George W. Bush is right that this war has to happen, right? That's like, that fits an important part of the narrative on TV. They're like, geez, even the experts on the other side say this must be done. Bill Clinton himself went on the David Letterman show, said, don't worry, David, it'll be over in two weeks. It'll be fine. So, you know, they fill this important role in the argument. Even Bill Clinton says we have to do it. And he's known as the most trustworthy guy in America, right? So got to go with that. If he can agree with W. Bush, then you know it's the right thing to do, not the wrong thing somehow. I don't know. Um, it's hard to think like these people sometimes, but you understand. And then, um, but anyway, so he was really influential in providing the intellectual cover for the escalation in Iraq War II, known as the surge in 2007 and eight in which, you know, tens of thousands of people were killed. And essentially the whole thing was a bust. Other than they proved the power of PR again for anyone taking notes to just claim the surge is working, the surge is working, the surge worked, the surge worked, and then just get <laughs> away with that without ever, while abandoning the definition of victory in the surge, which was the benchmarks that they were supposed to achieve. And they just dropped the benchmarks and just said, well, we like our slogan and we're keeping it. And, and then they won that. They won the public opinion over with that and claimed that they had won that war when they had only won it for people who hated them and kicked them the hell right out of the country again. And the neocons have been completely wrong about how that was supposed to work. And, um, and then uh, Fred also you know, took the initiative to be a major part of the cheerleading squad behind the Afghanistan surge a few years later. Yeah. Another surge. <laughs> and, and based on the idea that the Iraq war surge had been such a wonderful success, that that's why they had to do it again in Afghanistan. Again, tens of thousands of people killed. And the whole thing was a bust. And it's not just antiwar.com. I mean, hell, antiwar.com, we have a lot of great in-house writers, but we link to a lot of great writers too. And I got to tell you, there were a lot of people who knew better than this. It wasn't just our little you know, group of friends or something like that. There were a lot of people who said, this is absolutely the wrong thing to do. And, oh, man, you guys are going to do it anyway, aren't you? And then they did. So, you know, and this keeps happening over and over again. I forget, I forget uh, specifics of Kagan's, either of the Kagan's role really in Syria, if I ever really knew. I know that Robert Kagan supported allowing the Muslim Brotherhood to have a shot at running the government in Egypt after they got elected. And he said that, look, we say we believe in democracy for these people, so they elected some Islamists. They're conservative Islamists. They're not bin Ladenite suicide bombers. They're essentially rich old men, which means they're conservatives. They're not going to do anything crazy. And maybe we can figure out a way to work with them and even, you know, bend them our way a little bit and show that maybe we could still spread democracy over there. Like, in other words, at least according to Jim Loeb, he really took that as like, you know, Robert Kagan really believes in this stuff. And here was a chance yeah. they had overthrown a dictator that we supported, 
but then they held fair elections and the MB won it. So what the hell? And they're not the worst Muslim Brotherhood in the world. There are some pretty bad Muslim Brotherhood factions in the world. But in Egypt, they're essentially a bunch of rich old, uh, you know, landowners and doctors and things like this who would not, um, had no agenda to turn the Middle East upside down with their victory or anything. But then I don't know how quickly he backed off of that. And that's the only thing I can say to his credit, that he seemed to believe something that he said at one point, Robbie, I'm straight, I'm scraping the bottom of the barrel here, but <laughs> he helped get a million people killed in Iraq war too. And there ain't no way around that. A really important distinction how there was neocons inside the administration. There was neocons on the outside who were in think tanks, who were on these, you know, testifying at committees and writing in these publications, sort of all working in concert together with the same agenda and uh, the Kagan family in particular, they seem to be some of the only really hardcore Bush era neocons that established some really strong kind of continuity between the Bush and the Obama administrations in terms of the the neocon policymakers that sort of stayed on board. I mean, you saw Victoria Newland sort of, you know, rising in prominence, the Fred Kagan constantly, you know, being I mean, he was basically assigned um, to to hang out with Petraeus uh, in Afghanistan to work on the surge uh, with his with his wife. Um, and then Robert Kagan, of course, was advising Obama in, directly in the White House. And, and Obama was, you know, famously reading his book on his way into the White House in his first term. So it is interesting that, they, that the whole family plays that unique role. Let it not go without saying for the audience here that Victoria Newland, that's Robert Kagan's wife. And, yes. And she was, you know, in the State Department under Hillary Clinton— she was uh, heavily involved in the coup d'etat in Ukraine, you know, extremely importantly. But you know what? Here's a little bit of trivia for you just for fun for later on that I'm sure you remember in the end of 2012, McClatchy newspapers ran a story about this, but you can also just find it at the State Department's website that the State Department announced that Jabhat al-Nusra in Syria is just an alias for al-Qaeda in Iraq, our enemies from the last war. And it's huh. Victoria Newland's name is on that press release. Fascinating. In case you need an authoritative source where they admit the horrible, horrible, ugly, treasonous truth before they really, well, that's like one year into their treason, almost. Absolutely fascinating. You know, it, well, one thing I will say is that it did seem like the Institute for the Study of War at one time was trying to create so much granularity with all the different groups in Syria to make it appear that, well, you know, there's so many different groups that, you know, some of the ones that we're funding are bound to have some sympathies to Al-Qaeda because there's just so many different crossovers with all these other different groups. And they would release these documents with like hundreds and hundreds of different groups with these, you know, check boxes showing how sympathetic they were to AQAP and things like that. So just an interesting that Victoria Newland uh, was part of that press release and they just tried to try to massage the optics over time to eventually get to this place where it's like, you know, yeah, we just want Assad gone, you know, basically by any means possible, including whitewashing the fact that there's an Al-Qaeda affiliated group there. But then, you know, we get to the Trump era and then we have this whole perception, which I think is oversimplified, that the neocons, you know, as a com complete whole, uh, you know, abandon uh, sort of the entire Trump movement. And, you know, the, the Kagans and the Crystals and those people did. But then you had a couple little um, outliers, I would say, that sort of got their claws into the Trump administration, obviously, most famously, John Bolton. But, you know, you're aware 
very aware of some of these Reaganite, you know, neocon people, specifically somebody who was part of the original, I forgot the actual name of the paper. I think it was during George W. Bush or George Bush one. Um, and Zalmi, Zalmi Khaliazad was involved in that paper. Um, he's from Project for the New American Century as well. And when he got appointed inside the Trump administration to work on Afghanistan, I mean, what was your reaction to this? Did this change your expectations of Trump, you know, following through with his rhetoric that he, you know, was going to immediately withdraw in Afghanistan? Um, and what, and I guess in addition to that, what do you think, you know, I guess cut off Trump's balls in terms of like not following through, you know, for as tough as his rhetoric was as standing up to the deep state, what was it that ultimately, you know, uh, made him turn away from that, you know, really doubling down on that? No, listen, I'm glad you brought this up because I wanted to say this earlier and I got diverted off on some ridiculous tangent instead or whatever, but that when Khalil Saad made this deal that I still don't know how Trump made him live up to his promise. My immediate assumption, as you're kind of alluding to here, obviously was that, oh, great. He hired Zalmay Khalilzad to negotiate the thing. Well, he must have made Trump a promise with his fingers crossed behind his back, and he's never going to negotiate a real deal out of here. I mean, you talk to me all day about Obama and Bush supposedly negotiate, or not so much Bush, but Obama's people trying to negotiate with the Taliban. So it doesn't mean that it's going to actually get anywhere. And Zalmay Khalilzad, well, I don't trust him at all. But, you know, one thing about him that was like a little star asterisk footnote there was um, that he had introduced Trump at a speech that Trump gave at the National Interest Foundation. And uh, this was actually, you know, Trump used to get this right. Sorry for this tangent, but I love it. It's in this speech. It begins almost. I'm, I'm pretty sure it begins with. Obama is responsible for ISIS. One, because of backing the jihadists in Libya. Two, because of backing the jihadists in Syria. And three, because he pulled all the troops out of Iraq. Which, in context, is kind of true, right? Like, if the troops had been in western Iraq, they might have been able to keep ISIS from taking over the place, depending on how many of them you had deployed there, right? But the real point's being, Obama did these horrible things in Libya and Syria first, and that's what really led to the rise of it. But anyway... Separate side footnote there. But it was Khalil Zad introduced him. And I thought, well, I don't know exactly what's the basis of this relationship. But these guys have a friend in common or something. This was actually kind of controversial when it happened. This is still when he was running for president. It was kind of controversial when it happened because, oh, you're normalizing him and this kind of thing. You know what I mean? Um, at the time. And so I don't know and I've never read a story that purported to claim to explain how Trump got Khalil Zad to promise that not only am I going over there, but I really mean it. And I really am going to do the work required to see this through. And like, what did Trump say to him? Swear on your son's life or what? You know what I mean? To get him to like, no, I really, really, really <laughs> promise. And I'm not lying when I say I promise I will do this. Because I don't know how, I don't know what else explains it. I'm just making that up about the threat on the sun. I'm just saying like, what, what could it be? What could it possibly be? Um, that got Khalil Zad to do this. I had no confidence in it at all. And uh, I'm not sure how long it was into the process before I realized that, hey, wow, they really are doing this. I don't know. Uh, he, is he still uh, in the same pos position? Like, yes. He didn't leave, yes. right? Yes, Biden kept right. him, and he's still leading the negotiations yeah. in Qatar right now. 
So you could you could credit him even for what's happening. You're, so you're sort of giving him some credit in terms of actually following through with the with the promise. Yes, absolutely right. I mean, he signed this deal in on February 29th, Leap Day, 2020. And it's a miracle, right? I mean, I remember not believing it when I heard it. And even then I thought, oh, come on, they're going to give up the Bagram Air Base? Ah, I can't. I guess we'll see. And then, of course, there was the rub that, well, not till May 2021. So if Trump loses, the Democrat could keep us there. But then Biden, you know, he kicked the can down the road. Oh, I'm sorry, this is another question you all asked me that I didn't answer earlier, too, was about the way that Biden has handled the withdrawal. And yeah, yeah, yeah. For, for anybody who's lasted this long in the interview, here's here's on the breaking news. Um, he did screw up. He should have stuck with the May 1st deadline. And now think about how hard this Band-Aid is to rip off, Robbie. Here's what he should have done. He should have said on January 21st, listen up, everybody, bitter pill. The Afghan government and its army are an absolute joke. And I know that there's a way better than likely chance that if I leave all these weapons behind for the ANA, that the Taliban are just going to get them. And I think if we try to leave our diplomatic staff in Kabul to prop up the government there, I think the government's going to fall anyway, and our staff could be in danger. So go ahead and throw all your slings and arrows you got, Lindsey Graham, and blame me for the collapse of the ANA and the Kabul government. I don't care. I'm convinced that they would collapse no matter what. And so, yes, you can say I'm fatally undermining the Afghan National Army by taking all their trucks and weapons away, but you know what? Tough. It was going to happen anyway. But see, he was never going to do that. You can tell how crazy that is for me to just say it. Tell the whole truth, a Democrat? No. So what do they do? They come in, they delay the withdrawal, and then... Um, they also stick with this fiction that, yeah, we built up this 300,000-man army that's sworn to fight to the death and will last probably a year or more, maybe even, certainly months or till the end of the year, in order to protect the government in Kabul. And so we're, it's perfectly reasonable to leave behind all these military bases full of equipment, even helicopters. Um, and it's per because the—what are we going to do? Undermine the Afghan National Air Force by taking their planes and helicopters away? couldn't do that. And, and we're going to leave our diplomatic staff because if we pull our diplomatic staff out, they'll blame us for undermining confidence in the government. Oh my God, the Americans are pulling out. And that would then be blamed as the cause. So instead they painted themselves into this stupid corner where they didn't really leave enough force protection for the withdrawal. And they gave up the Kandahar air base. I mean, yeah, so never mind that though. They gave up uh, Bagram air base north of Kabul. Uh, you know, earlier in the process. By the time Kabul fell, in fact, the day before Kabul fell, Bagram was handed over to the Taliban by the Afghan National Army. Now, I actually know a paratrooper who his group was prepared to go, and an, an army officer, they were prepared to go back and re-seize the Bagram Air Base for this evacuation. But then they couldn't do that. It was too late. The Taliban had already overran the damn thing. And so they had to settle for the airport. So now it's like this mad dash thing. Although I'll hasten to add here, and I think it's so important that contrary to the narrative of this being the worst thing that ever happened in the world or whatever, the Taliban have held the ceasefire and have not killed any Americans. And all of the diplomatic staff are out. 
And then they claim, and I don't know what's the basis for this, and I don't believe it, but I'm, I'd like to hear a reasonable explanation. But they have claimed that there is from 10 to 15,000 American citizens spread throughout Afghanistan somewhere who need to get out of there. And I'm sure That's that number absurd. has got to be completely inflated like crazy. But are they saying they're contractors or who do they? They're not even really that specific. I mean, I guess that's supposed to be the understanding. And oh. then supposedly they're in cities and towns all across the country, which that doesn't sound right to me. It seems like, you know, maybe there are a few, I don't know, let's say hundreds left behind yeah. in Kandahar City. Max, you're maxing out my imagination now. How could there be thousands and thousands and thousands of Americans yeah. where in Ghazni and Lashkar Gah and Kandahar City. I just can't believe that it's that many. Um, but, you know, in fact, the thing that distracted me a minute ago was someone was accusing me and, and someone said the Taliban are not letting Americans get to the airport. I have multiple sources telling me this. And then someone said, well, that's impossible because Scott Horton said in his recent interview that that could never happen. But that's not what I said. I said in my recent interview, which was like a week ago, that that ain't happening yet, and that that of course remains a distinct a distinct possibility that they could do that. But clearly, what has not happened is a massive, you know, murder campaign against the Americans as they flee. There's, you know, they've provided essentially safe corridor for everyone to get away, and have held their fire the whole time and not, you know, abused their victory here against the U.S. anyway, which was the deal. Yeah, and so. Well, even not just against the Americans. I mean, if there was some kind of mass roundup execution, like, you know, like, you know, there has been some things that the Taliban did before where they would bring people into like a stadium and execute them in front of a crowd. But I mean, if anything like that had happened on mass, we would have seen it in the Western media by now. I mean, and it could still be coming. I mean, you know what they had? Sure. I, I've been safely predicting the worst for a long time and saying, look, there's a possibility that it won't be that bad that they'll just win with such overwhelming numbers that they'll just kind of, you know, essentially take over and not, and you know, really hold a monopoly on force and not allow civil war to break out kind of thing. But also, it could be really bad, and they could try to inflict, you know, real totalitarianism on people, or, or at least, you know, a very strict authoritarianism. And certainly 20 years ago, they were horrible in their administration of the government. And over the last 20 years, they have worked brutal campaigns, including the mass murder of civilians and including with suicide bombs and everything. And that's not all the so-called ISIS group there. The Taliban had done that, especially during the surge, uh, used suicide attacks against civilians and just all kinds of atrocities. So I wouldn't put it past them to do, I don't know, anything pretty much bad other than I, I don't believe at all that they're going to be an aggressive power and threaten their neighbors in any way. Again, like the Muslim Brotherhood in Egypt. They're far-rightists, but they're conservatives, not radicals. And they don't want world revolution. They want revolution in Kabul, and they've already gotten it. And so what are they going to do, invade Uzbekistan or something? They're going to invade Iran and overthrow the Ayatollah for us or something? I don't know. Uh, I just don't believe it. Um, and they'd be crazy to start backing al-Qaeda types and allow them to attack foreign countries out of Afghanistan or, you know, organize, participate in attacks in any way and just get themselves carpet bombed off the face of the earth again, like has happened before. Uh, just, you know, and, but it's not a matter of trust. It's not a matter of like, oh, good. I, I love the Taliban. They're great or <laughs> some kind of thing. Right. It's just it's in their interest. It was in their interest to cut this deal. And it's been in their interest to abide by the deal so far. 
And people are acting like it's the Khmer Rouge or even ISIS, you know, taking over Western Iraq. I think that's what people feared, right? It's like ISIS rolling into Western Iraq. And if you're the enemy, they just machine gun you right there on the side of the road. If you're the enemy, they'd capture you, line you up in the field and machine gun you all the death over 25 minutes. <laughs> Some kind of horrible thing, you know, uh, throwing gay people off the roof and all this kind of stuff. I was told, I've been told twice, the Taliban are beheading people. But then when I look, all I see is, well, somebody said that and we heard that somewhere, but that's it. I saw that at Fox News. Um, I did not see like a credible explanation of who they're beheading. And again, I wouldn't put it past them to do some horrible stuff like that, but it's not typically their style. And typically they just shoot a guy dead, you know? Yeah. Um, and I, you know, I don't know. Um, I guess it's within the realm of possibility, but you know, there's going to be a lot of scare stories and all of that. But I think at the end of the day, well, look so far as of this recording, which is what Tuesday afternoon, um, there's no Americans have been killed yet. And I don't know whether the Taliban are going to live up to their promise. I mean, they have agreed, the, the, gov the U.S. government claims that they have agreed to allow free access to all Americans to the airport. There have been numerous reports out of Kabul that say that that's not true, and that Americans are being held and detained and, and who knows what. So we'll see how that all plays out. But uh, uh, I mean, one angle to all this is that the media uh, really seem to turn on Biden in a surprising way. I mean, uh, MSNBC, CNN, a lot of the sort of the more liberal leaning media channels um, really took a harsh position against um, what happened in Afghanistan or, or what he, you know, even his speech in Afghan, you know, about Afghanistan and sort of defending what he had done. I'm just wondering what, you, what you've seen in sort of the anti-war community uh, from from my perspective, I, I was actually surprised to see a lot of people really giving a, a Biden like a, a props for for taking such a position. Um, some people I saw were even saying this is like the most anti-war speech I've seen from a president since like like this is like more anti-war than anything like Trump has ever said, anything Obama's ever said. And I was a little bit surprised by that. You know, not that I entirely disagree with some of the things people are saying. Like I, I was surprised too by sort of the not giving a fuck attitude that Biden seemed to have about this. It, it did strike me as sort of unusual. And I'm just wondering how you felt about that and the media's subsequent, you know, turn against him. But then also, what do you think about some of these speculative theories that um, have been floating around out there that maybe this was Biden's way of head faking sort of these, you know, these generals or these people who are trying to get him to stay in as long as possible beyond even his own extended deadline. You know, like maybe they were trying to slow walk him past his own deadline, even though he had already, you know, moved it up from Trump's deadline. And then this, and this was sort of like a head fake, like, no, we're getting out like now. And like almost could that, you know, what is your comment on that? Do you think any of that's possible well, I mean, the Taliban are just taking territory, right? So once Trump kicked the can down the road, the Taliban didn't. They went ahead and started taking over the provincial capitals on schedule. I see. You made a bad mistake if you waited this long kind of thing. I mean, it's clear the, the Pentagon was trying to slow walk him. As far as my take on Biden, I mean, look, he should be congratulated. And this did take, as you say, it took that attitude for him to do this. All the pressure on him was to stay no matter what. And although the people arguing that usually don't make any sense, 
Like, oh, we haven't had any casualties at all. Yeah, well, we've had a ceasefire for two and a half years. Welcome to starting <laughs> to pay attention to this story for the first time in your life. Um, that'll help keep your numbers down. Um, but no, the reality is that the Taliban were in a major position of strength and they finally went ahead and, and took the initiative there. So, um, and then, yes, I think Biden just absolutely faced them down um, and, and fulfilled, essentially fulfilled the deal that Trump and Khalil Saad had made. And so, you know, I was on the Kennedy show on Fox Business the other day and the narrative was about, you know, what a bad job Biden has done on the withdrawal. And uh, I says, yeah, essentially, but so what? I mean, the reality is it's a withdrawal and that's what counts is that we're finally ending this yeah. war and that Trump and Biden both should be praised and congratulated. Forget all this partisanship, man. I don't care about stuff like that, man. I just care about the issues. And on this question, they're both absolutely doing the right thing by ending this war. And again, as I said, he should have got out by the May 1st deadline and he should have told the whole truth that the ANA is a joke, man. You might as well say, you know, we're leaving this in the hands of some sheriff from Mexico. We're not doing that. You know, it's just not going to happen. We're So we're going to destroy all these weapons, whatever, because it's a real fair criticism that they let all those weapons fall into the hands of the Taliban the way that they did. And thousands of trucks or hundreds and hundreds of trucks, I think thousands of trucks and, and uncounted numbers of light arms and God knows what, uh, helicopters and, and who knows. So that it really is a catastrophe. And they really did that wrong. But, um, at, you know, in the scheme of things, the whole war has been bad the whole time. <laughs> yeah. So why would the withdrawal work great? And the, the withdrawal is the equivalent of accidentally shooting eight little kids uh, looking for firewood with your Apache helicopter to death. You know, that's, yeah, that's what the Afghan war looks like. It's been FUBAR the whole time. And it's been unfair to the soldiers sent there under the lie that they were doing some noble thing, that they're risking their life to protect their country or protect these poor, innocent savages who were being threatened by this horrible Taliban invasion or whatever narrative they were told. And it's been unfair to the people of Afghanistan. They've been put through this for 20 years for nothing, right back where they started. And it never had to be this way at all. And, it, you know, that to me is what's really behind the outrage over the withdrawal and the media turning on them and whatever. They can't admit that George Bush was wrong to commit to this at all. And Barack Obama yeah. was insane and should be in prison for quadrupling the war that he should have ended his first day in office. They can't admit the surge was a joke. Petraeus is a loser. The whole thing was a hoax. America lost. And so instead they have to say, well, General Austin didn't organize the withdrawal properly. Okay, point taken. Criticism accepted. I don't, you know, whatever. I'm not a Biden defender. I'm a Biden accuser. I'm just saying his order that Mr. Secretary, I want everybody out of there. You make sure that it looks good and works right. That was the right order to give. You know, absolutely right. And and I know that the Pentagon and the CIA and everybody tried to stop him too. And he told them all to go to hell. Yeah. I mean, one thing I think that's been missing all along, you know, at least the, even the mainstream pushback that eventually came against the Iraq war had you know, had a moral component to it. There were people, a lot A lot of the time you would hear about the Iraqi people. You don't hear so much about the Afghanistan people, even from a lot of the people who agree with withdrawing. They see it more as a quagmire. They see it more as a waste of resources, which it is, both of those. But the moral component is not talked about. And I just think that that's sad that the Afghanistan people, 
you know, in the end are the ones who have to suffer the most for this because we don't even, you know, even some of the most liberal acting people here don't seem to really care about them. I mean, in addition to that, you don't right, even it's really to yeah. protect them. So any yeah. violence that we bring against them doesn't count. You know, it's almost exactly. cliche. Exactly. Yeah. That because people are so tone deaf when they say, oh, we have to protect the Afghan women. That then it becomes cliche to say, yeah, it's that the ones that we're bombing to death in the process of supposedly protecting the rest. But the people making that first claim, they don't have to consider that. They don't have to worry about that. You know, there have been stories over the years about how Afghans have never heard of 9-11. They have no idea even what it is. So a decent person like yeah. you or me yeah. says, well, what in the hell? Or our neighbors, you know. Well, what in the hell? How can these people be guilty of attacking us if they don't even know why we're there at all? They never even heard of the damn thing. But then the answer is, yeah, yeah. but no, we're not taking it out on them. We're not fighting them. We're not waging a punitive strike against Afghanistan for 20 years to punish them for 9-11. We're there to build a democracy for them. We're here to protect them from the foreign enemy, the Taliban who would try to take away their popular sovereignty and, and pro-Western democracy that we're building. When the Taliban weren't foreign invaders, we're the foreign invaders. The Taliban are their family members fighting for their independence, at least, you know, some of them. Certain factions and certain tribes and certain ethnicities in certain parts of the country, at least. And so they just essentially tell this lie. They're like... You're saying, how unfair is it that we're killing people in the Korangal Valley or the Petch Valley who've never even heard of us before? Didn't even know there was such a thing as North America. What's North America? Imagine that, not even knowing of the New World. And yet its soldiers are coming here and turning your society upside down and shooting your sons. And then the Americans going, yeah, no, we only came here to, you know, help give them school books and improve their well and make them like us somehow. These desperately poor people living in bad lands on the farthest side of the planet from here who have no interest whatsoever in any of this. In fact, I tell the story of Korangal Valley and Fool's Aaron, where it all started as one guy wanted the other guy's timber company. And so he sicked the Americans on his business rival and took over. Mm. And then this is, you know, for years they fought. And it's all over who controls the timber you know, the logging in this valley. As, who's the Taliban? What's the Taliban? They never heard of that. It has nothing to do with them. You know? Yeah. It's the, whole, the whole thing is just bananas. In fact, someone on Twitter the other day said, he heard me talking about this anecdote where the local Afghans think the Americans are Russians because they're so isolated, they don't know that the Russians ever left. And they're yeah. so isolated that they don't know the Americans ever came. And so... Sort of like the stories you used to hear about Vietnam and the French. Yeah. That so, the, how right, the Viet Cong right. thought that they were fighting the French when it was actually Americans. Yeah, exactly. Only this is like with, you know, a solid two decades in between. <laughs> right? Yeah, yeah. Or no, a solid decade, but and even into two decades later, right? I'm like, I'm hearing these stories from early Obama years. But then, so I went and asked some friends and I got... Um, you know, Danny Sherson and Matthew Ho and uh, my friend Adam House, who was in Korangal, Um, And all three of them had friends who told them this while they were there. So it's not like just hearsay that they saw in a movie somewhere or whatever. They were told this in Afghanistan that, yeah, did you hear what happened to Jimmy? He went and talked to these guys and they thought he was a Ruski. You know, they'd never heard of North America in their lives. 
um, you know, um, this guy, there's a guy named, um, Wesley Morgan has just written a book called The Hardest Place, which I haven't had a chance to read yet. I got it right here. I really have it at the top of my list. And it's about the war in the Petch Valley. And there was a clip of him. I, he did a whole interview with C-SPAN too, which I haven't seen yet, but I saw a clip of him where he's saying, you know, you have people in the north of the country speaking Dari and Urdu, and you're trying to like have them kind of rule over the Pashtuns who speak Pashto down in the south and in the east of the country. So but he goes, but then you have up in the Petch Valley, and then he names these other couple of valleys. And he says, you have these, all these other religions too. And he names, I mean, not religions, languages. And he names three or four languages that you've never heard of in your life, where it's not even a dialect. It's a language of its own, and it's spoken by this one group of hillbillies that live in this one valley in Afghanistan, and they live there ever since time immemorial, and they don't mess with the guys in the other valley, and the guys in the other valley don't mess with them, and they have their own language, totally like, I mean, it must be derivative of something, but going way, way back. Um, from And Matthew Ho has talked about this, from valley to valley to valley. Um, and then another great anecdote like this was Frank Ledwidge, who I've interviewed a couple times and wrote a couple books about this, was um, British naval intelligence. And he was stationed in the Helmand province during the surge. And that really the Marines and the army were there in Helmand to back up the Brits who had gotten themselves into a mess was what they were doing there. But anyway, so Frank Ledwidge told me this story of how an Afghan says to him, what are you guys even doing in our country anyway? And he says, well... What happened was some Arabs crashed a plane into a building in a village called New York in a valley far away from here. And then the Afghan says, well, what's that got to do with me? And he says, well, I don't know, nothing, of course, right? Like, that's the joke. We're here to help you, man. We're not here to punish you. We're here to make you love us somehow. That's what they said the mission was. Right. And then, but the joke there is, are you kidding me? A village called New York? Because what? This guy doesn't know what a city is. So you have to call it a village. And New York, you mean the most important city in the world since at least between the world wars? The most influential, the, the biggest city, the most um, financially influential city and otherwise on the face of the earth for generations now. You never heard of it before? And then the answer is, that's right. He never heard of it before because he's from the Helmand province and he doesn't even know that there's a new world. You know, he's probably heard that the world is round before, but he didn't know that you could sail east and end up in the west. And we're killing yeah. him, but not as punishment. <laughs> we're killing him because we're there to win him over. That's what's so, I mean, it's also just calls into question this whole black and white way that Americans have been presented with the Afghanistan war. You know, first it was we we're there to fight al-Qaeda, then it was there we're fighting the Taliban. But, you know, how many times are we actually engaged in firefights with just people who don't want us there, who aren't, you know, necessarily Taliban? That's never really addressed, you know, because it's just, it's just reduced to this cartoonish narrative because it serves such a, you know, useful purpose. But I, I guess I just wanted to, to end this discussion with you by asking you about something that we haven't talked about yet, which is sort of how you perceive um, the official libertarian party as it stands right now. And it, you know, how you feel about it's, it's um, 
is it is it good on anti-war? Is it is it really really good? Is it great right now? Or would you say that it's lacking, or that it could use some tweaks, some, a major overhaul, uh, a completely complete replacement? You know, because I guess from my perspective, it seems like a couple of the last few official candidates who've run in the party for president, at least haven't been, you know, compared to at least, you know, the early 2000s, haven't been that strong. Um, I, I recall someone like Bob Barr. He, he was a while ago now, but Gary Johnson also just didn't seem particularly strong either. But I, again, I haven't really paid too much attention to it. So I, I don't know. Is there anyone that you're paying attention to that you think um, is involved in the party right now that you think is is particularly strong? Um, are you involved in the party at all, or do you sort of stay out of its affairs? Uh, you know, uh, what is your sort of take on all of that right now? Yeah, good bunch of questions. All right, well, so first of all, before I criticize anybody, I'll take responsibility. Um, I was an advisor to the presidential candidate in 2004, and uh, Michael Badnark was his name, um, not yeah. Bob Barr, um, but yeah. then um, Gary Johnson. I forget if I talked to him in 12. I think I did not talk to him in 12, but a friend of a friend came to me and asked me to help advise him in 16. And I, maybe I did advise him in 12 too. I'm sorry. I can't remember Robbie anymore. If I, I okay. tried to try to talk to him a few times. And then I was, um, I was an advisor to, um, to George Jorgensen, who was the candidate in 2020 as well. Um, for Badnarik, okay. I was paid just the price of my cell phone bill for calling him all the time. It was really expensive back then. And then um, for the others, I never accepted a dime. I never had an official title. I was just an unofficial advisor and friend trying to have a little bit of influence, such as it was, um, just for the record here. Um, but then, you know, I'm not a big fan of all the different colored pills and talking about everything that way. And hell, The Matrix is 20 years ago. I don't know if people have even seen that anymore or what, but... There's an argument, I think it's a fair way to characterize it in a way, right? That there's the blue-pilled libertarians and the red-pilled libertarians. And the blue-pilled libertarians, like, they're pretty good on things. But maybe just the right thing hadn't quite got under their fingernails and made them mad as hell yet. Where the red-pilled libertarians are people who are entirely exasperated with the state of American society and want so desperately to change it somehow and make it less worse and and see it as such a crisis and see winning over our fellow American, you know, civilian population such as it is into seeing things more or less our way. And I guess you would say the blue pill types don't quite see what the emergency is all about in a, in the same kind of way. So they're they're good on the litmus test. You know, should we get rid of the IRS? Hell yeah. Should we get rid of the DEA? Yesterday. Should we have a bunch of wars? No, of course not. Right? They'll pass. But then will they tell you like, man, we have to end the war on Yemen now because, ah, the way I do. No. And it's because, and look, not everybody can be a master of that particular subject. But just the point being that, you look, are we going to end the drug war? Because it just makes no sense. And it's really not fair. And we end up like eroding the Fourth Amendment, and that's bad. And, and economically speaking, geez, you make uh, drugs illegal and with all these severe penalties, well, you just drive up the price because of the risk involved in transporting and trading in this stuff. 
And then, so that just induces even more people to join in the market of trading and this stuff anyway. And so it's a big paradox and it just doesn't make sense. Now, all that's right. Every bit of that is right. But also what's right is that there's some good person, many, many good people who are sitting in a filthy, dank cell locked up with really bad criminals that they're terrified of and for very good reason who don't deserve to be there at all. And maybe they did commit one violent felony but that was their third strike, and their first two strikes was carrying a joint and carrying a gun. And now they punch somebody, and so they got to do 30 years or some crazy thing, you know, because of these prohibitions. And then, but you have to, like, really zoom in. We're talking about a real human being sitting locked in a cage like an animal for not really doing anything to anybody breaking up his family, destroying his community, and leading to all these social problems. And it's, you know, an atrocity against one person is an atrocity. It's intolerable the way our criminal justice system treats people. And so, damn it, we want to put an end to that. Right. And I guess you don't usually get that from the LP types. You get that from the libertarian movement. You don't get that from yeah. the Libertarian Party. And in fact, I cracked a joke lately. I said, well, and, and I said this to an audience, but I also said to an audience of one or two, uh, you know, I won't say who, but I got the laugh I was going for when I says, look, if I said to you, well, at least one thing's for sure, you know, thank goodness that the Libertarian Party has been the vanguard of the anti-war movement this whole century long so far. And then they all laugh. The crowd laughs and the influential type libertarian party person I'm thinking of also thought that that was pretty funny because in fact, obviously the libertarian party should have been in cutthroat competition with the answer coalition for who can be the most effective anti-war force in America, who can scream and yell and fight about this all day, every day. And and it should have been us. We should have been the very best. And look, antiwar.com was here. LewRockwell.com and, and, and the Future Freedom Foundation, the Independent Institute. I mean, there was all kinds of great stuff, even before Facebook and everything took over. There's all of the important libertarian institutions. Cato had some great people and some bad people, but their foreign policy people were pretty damn good on this all. Um, their actual foreign policy department. But all the rest of the libertarian institutions in America were really hardcore on this. Anyway, I don't want to get into naming names and blaming people, but whatever. The point is, they couldn't understand, Robbie. They just couldn't understand. You know, George Bush is the Iraq War. Go get him, man. Get that son of a bitch now. Explain how is it that the Republican Party somehow is dominated by a bunch of former communist Trotskyites who lied us into this war. And that you don't give a damn who wins instead, but this man must be punished for the crime that he has committed against Iraq and against this country for lying us into this war. And anything less than that is absolutely intolerable. That should have been the only message of 2004. Same thing for, you know, the others and for their campaign staff and whatever. They're just, I don't know. They're just the wrong generation, man. They just don't understand. They just don't understand. But now, here's the other part of your question to answer, which is, no, it doesn't have to be this way. 
It does not have to be this way. And there's a massive generational change that's going on as the millennials are really joining the party now. Us poor Gen Xers are stuck in the middle of this, I guess. Um, but uh, there is a massive new movement of people joining the Libertarian Party, and especially through what's called the Mises Caucus, which is a radical new young Ron Paulian faction of hardcore, you know, pro-my-take type people. Um, uh, but not just them. I mean, there are a lot of people just joining the Libertarian Party outright because they want to see the Libertarian Party speak like antiwar.com speaks and speak like, you know, our favorite, uh, like over at the Mises Institute where our favorite economists explain what the hell is going wrong with this corrupt economy. You know, there's a brand new book that they're working on right now. They're, they're a new guy that, uh, Newman, I think is his name. I'm not that familiar, but he's the new guy that just got promoted to something or other there. And his big project is working on crony capitalism and the evil of the government saving capitalists from the forces of the market by, you know, bailing them out at taxpayer expense and all of that. And this is the kind of libertarianism, you know, anti-central banking and war. This is the kind of libertarianism that makes the movement proud and that we want to see the LP represent. And that truly is the movement of the Mises Caucus. And that's the attempt here is that like, look, you know, as Tom Woods said, we have this thing called the Libertarian Party. It would be nice if it spoke for us. And like maybe we could make it speak for us. And and basically that's it. You know what I mean? And then so the priorities are obvious, right? The priorities are we go against the worst things that our government does, right? And then so that's the narrative that everyone ought to be able to agree on. Everyone, no matter where you're from, right? Conservative Republicans and liberal Democrats and everything to the left and right of them and everything toward the middle from them and everything. We ought to build a consensus. We ought to be able to build a consensus, you know, almost like in a realignment, like FDR type faction or fashion where you have like town and country and East and West and, uh, you know, black and white and all the, you know, Hispanics and all whatever different ethnic factions and all of these things where everybody agrees that we're not doing these totalitarian lockdowns anymore. We're just not. We're going to all come to oppose that no matter what. Um, take whatever precautions you want. Take them voluntarily. And then from there, because that really is the worst police state crazy crackdown our government's doing right now. But then after that is, and, and, and tied with that, is absolutely abolishing and renouncing world empire and just absolutely calling off the project of global dominance entirely republic not empire full stop no more argument about that sailing everybody home and that's it um and then from there again abolishing all the corrupt crony capitalism in the military industrial complex and on wall street and that includes in the medical industry where everything is rigged for the insurance companies and the hospital companies and the pharmaceutical companies against the customers the patients which is you know absolutely must be completely abolished from there and then of course the drug war and all the militarization of the police all the NSA and CIA and FBI spying on the American people and all that everything every advance they've made homeland security everything they've done under, you know, um, and the Patriot Act, all this stuff under the war on terrorism since W. Bush, repeal it all, repeal the 21st century when it comes to all of the domestic police state type stuff. And then, uh, anyway, down, I'm rambling, but down the list of the very worst things that the government is doing right now, and especially the things, and, and hopefully in a way where we can call a truce on the culture war, you know, where decentralizing power, abolishing government departments for real, not Rick Perry style, Ron Paul style, 
Like, we do not need a Department of Education. That's why everybody hates each other so much. You know, force my kids to learn this. You're going to force my kids to learn that. Let's fight. No, let's not fight. Let's just completely decentralize all of this planning so that it's not up to people to, to force people who are so different from them to go along and have this horrible culture war dividing, you know, just making life miserable for everybody else all the time. And I bet you that more Americans are sick and tired of the culture war than are relishing waging it all the time and would like to really dial the whole damn thing down, if not call it all off, if we could. And I think that the libertarian program, you know, absolutely is, you know, it should be the thing that we can agree on. Like, even if you really yeah. favor socialism, go ahead and, and still you should favor my 10th Amendment plan. And like, we're going to go ahead and really strengthen 10th Amendment respect here and let the states decide these things. If California wants to keep moving left, fine. Just don't drive the rest of the country with you the way that they don't want to do, you know? And then they can also leave your kids alone and not force you to adopt Southern baptism or whatever it is that you're afraid of on their side, you know? And I don't just mean you. I'm sorry. I mean the left, generally speaking. <laughs> no, I, I think your approach to that is really good. And, and I would, uh, I would definitely be paying more attention to the party, the official party itself, if it, if it leaned more in the directions that you're talking about and unequivocally, you know, unabashedly took an anti-empire approach and, and criminal justice reform, if you want to even call it that, that sounds like such a almost, almost overly conservative term to use these days. I mean, yeah, I mean, severe. Uh, yes. To an absolutely <laughs> severe degree. We want that kind of thing reformed where people yeah. are not unfairly being put away for things that are not truly crimes, which, you know, is really just out of control. And there's a million of them, you know, everybody's heard a million examples of the thing where, Somebody gets tried. They get tried as a group. But one guy really doesn't belong in the group at all. But they all get 30 years. And imagine they do that to your brother, to you. Locking a cage for 30 yeah. years when you got tried with a group of people that you only met one of them one time. But the DA thought that was good enough. And so did the judge. And so did the jury. And that's it for you. And there was yeah, no, I mean, like, it wasn't a Matlock episode where somebody came in and saved the day and justice was done at the end. Injustice was done. And off you go. And this happens daily in this country. It's, I'm sorry I'm rambling, but... It's really bad. And it should be, you know, completely exposed and ridiculed and confronted head on. You know, judges should be forced out. Legislators should be forced out. Things should have to really, really change over that. There should be a massive campaign over that. And I would advise people leave race out of it because obviously race is part of it. But when you make that the centerpiece of it all, you know, one day we're going to abolish racism. And then the next day, police abuse will disappear. Yeah, that's not how this works. Accountability for killer cops, no matter the color of their victim. How about that? That's a slogan we can all get behind. You know what I mean? Cops shouldn't be able to kill people unnecessarily and get away with it any more than anybody else is allowed to do that. Right? You're allowed to kill somebody. It's called justifiable homicide, but you better justify it good or off you go. And these guys don't have to justify yeah. good. They hardly have to justify it at all. And that absolutely has to change. And, and right-wingers and left-wingers and libertarians and everybody from all over the country ought to be able to agree on that, right? We're not saying lock all police in prison. We're saying lock murderer police in prison. That's got to be fair enough that we can shake hands and agree uh. and move forward on that, you know, and a lot of other things. But anyway, so that's my take. And yes, we got some rising new stars in the LP who are going to be making, you know, a more and more significant impact all the time. Just you watch. And by the way, for anybody listening who's interested in this kind of thing, first of all, read up on some Murray Rothbard and you'll know where we're coming from. And, and a lot more than that, but that's a great start is what I mean. Um, and if you're really interested in, um, 
in joining up. It's uh, the Mises Caucus is a great way, is a great avenue into the National Libertarian Party and into your state Libertarian Party where you can help make sure that the radicals win here and that we have a real, you know, the kind of campaign in 2024 that we had in 1996 and 2000 when the great Harry Brown ran, who was essentially like equivalent to Ron Paul in his awesomeness and, and did such a great job back sure. then. Um, I think we can pull off something like that next time around if everybody helps out. Well, that was my original entry point into libertarianism. Um, and I've definitely, you know, I've moved more left since then, but I mean, that was, that was probably the first figure or person that I looked up to that really, you know, resonated with me was, was Harry Brown. Me too. It, found Harry Brown in 96 before even Ron Paul. I first saw Ron Paul in C-SPAN in 97. So it was Harry Brown and then Ron Paul. And it was like, oh yeah, this is definitely the right faction of dudes yeah. that speak for me right here, man. Ever since then, you know? Yeah, well, that's that's great to hear that that was uh, that he was a, a big inspiration for you as well. And I hear that from people a lot too. That yeah, Harry, look, I got a bust of him on my shelf over here, pal. You know, <laughs> nice. he means a lot to me. Absolutely right. So tell um, our listeners where they can find your radio show, um, where they can find articles you've written, and also where they can get your books. Um, I mean. I'm sure people can get them on the big bookstore chains, but is there anywhere uh, that you'd prefer people order your books? Oh, yeah. Oh, that's a good question. So, yeah, starting with the books there, just go to libertarianinstitute.org slash books, and um, you can get uh, Fool's Errand. I don't know if I have all the links on Fool's Errand. Certainly you can search around. Um, but on Enough Already, the new book, I have links to all the different places that I know of where you can buy it. So people who really hate Amazon.com, you're not bound to Amazon there. You can get it from Barnes & Noble and from Target and Smashwords, and it's even on Scribd. And some of those are, you know, digital-only EPUB-type uh, things, but some of them are the hard, or the, well, paperback, the hard copy, I mean to say. Um, and uh, so all that's there. And if you just search for Fool's Errand, you can find it on Barnes & Noble and other places as well. I don't think I have all the links there. But anyway, um and then, uh, yeah, I'm on the radio, 90.7 FM on Sunday mornings, KPFK in Los Angeles. And um, I just give them the best show of the week or maybe the most half-hour show of the week. <laughs> uh, I send them uh, to play on the weekend there. And so I lived in L.A. for a couple of years, about a decade ago, and then I got to keep my show. I came home, and I told the guy, I'm going home, but I'm keeping my show. And he said, all right. So I'm on there still. <laughs> and um, But I'm back home, you know, in Austin where I'm from. And then, uh, let's see. Oh, uh, but it's also a podcast that people can subscribe to online, right? There's a longer version of it. it. Yeah. And I've been saving them online since 2003. So I now have 5,580 something episodes for you at scotthorton.org. Oh, and they're all also at youtube.com slash Scott Horton show. And that goes back to, uh, three days after the statue of Saddam was pulled down in Baghdad there. April 12th, 2003 is where it starts. So it's the whole terror oh, war is long for you there, everybody. Um, and then, wow. uh, oh, I'm the editorial director of antiwar.com, which is really great. And I hope people look at it first thing every morning with their Wheaties. And um, then uh, I'm also the director of the Libertarian Institute, which is me and Sheldon Richmond and Pete Quinones and Kyle Anzalone and a whole great group of podcasters and writers and uh, publish really great stuff every single day there at libertarianinstitute.org. And I think that's it. 
and some of our listeners will also recognize um, that uh, the Libertarian Institute, uh, Connor Freeman, and I think also Dave DeCamp, who's been on our show, has also written there, right? Is, is, is he right for Libertarian Institute? No, I, or, I or, sometimes poach Dave's articles from antiwar.com is what that is. You aggregate them on there. Yeah, yeah he's, he's our cool. news editor at antiwar.com. Which you're also associated with. Connor Freeman is absolutely excellent and writes for us at the Institute as well. And, and you know what? Yeah. You really like this guy. I'll tell you what. Uh, it's been a little while since he wrote something, but look him up. William Van Wagenen. And he wrote all this absolutely great research on Syria. Like there is no FSA. There is only Al-Qaeda and a bunch of other really great stuff. William Van Wagenen at the Libertarian Institute, libertarianinstitute.org. That'll be a nice, you know, Sunday afternoon catching up right there, I promise. I haven't heard his name before, so I'll have to check it out. Well, thanks, Scott, for taking so much time today. I hope a lot of our listeners go check out your stuff by your new book, which is called Enough Already, Time to End the War on Terrorism. Yes, in your previous book, uh, A Fool's Errand uh, about the Afghanistan War, both still on sale. That's from four years ago. Yeah, both excellent. Thanks for coming on Media Roots Radio, and we'll hope to talk to you again. Absolutely happy to do it, Robbie. Thank you very much. And tell your sister bye for me, too. But thanks, All man. Right, it's great man. doing it. I appreciate it a lot. The intro and outro track to this episode of Media Roots Radio was by the source of Foundation. Sadly, one half of the source of Foundation. Ashley Pearson passed away a couple of weeks ago and the title of the track is called Isle it is an unreleased The Source of Foundation track with Ashley's vocals rest in peace Ashley